Okay, we are ready to go. We are live <coughs> here. Joining us is Alexander Mercuris in London. We are very, very happy and honored to have with us two very special guests. We have Brian Berletic of the New Atlas joining us, and we have Gonzalo Lira from the Gonzalo Lira, again, channel, as well as the Roundtable channel. Both of their channels are listed down below in the description box, and I will also have them as a pinned comment after the live stream ends. So, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin, on Locals, Odyssey, Rumble, and YouTube, as well as Telegram. And uh, let's see, a quick hello. A quick hello to our moderators, and then we'll start talking news. Hello to Valley S. Good to see you here, Valley S. And also, Gonzalo Lira of the Roundtable. Oh, yeah. Thank you, you know, Gonzalo Lira, for joining you know, us. I, I, I follow the example of my betters by suppressing free speech. <laughs> <laughs> and who else? And it looks like Azariel, I think, is also in the house. I want to know mm. who's Azariel and myself. So those are our moderators for today. Mm. And I'm sure we'll have some more moderators jumping in as the uh, mm. live stream chugs along. So let's... Uh, Let's get started. Let me pass it mm. off to you, Alexander. Uh, Brian, Gonzalo, Alexander, we have a, a peace plan from Zelensky. Uh, so a three, a this, part okay, peace plan. I, I'm, I'm behind the curve because I was uh, doing some stuff this morning. <laughs> I'll, I'll summarize morning? it. I'll summarize it for you, Gonzalo. Um, give me more weapons. Give me more money. And Russia needs to retreat. And we can have a summit then. Upon, no. upon which we can discuss uh, Russia's no. surrender yeah. in Kiev. Yeah. So, Alexander, I pass it off to you. Let's get well, going. Well, I mean, it's not a peace plan. I mean, it's not even an attempted peace plan. It's something that is, I wouldn't even call it any kind of plan, but it's, it's more rhetoric, very belligerent rhetoric, ultimately. Rhetoric that's getting more and more detached from reality, in my opinion. But it's the kind of thing that Zelensky gets up to. To be straightforward about it, I don't think it's even a story, frankly. I think a much bigger story, a much more interesting story, is Merkel's interview to decide, which um, in which basically she said that Minsk was stillborn from the moment it was conceived and that she really did absolutely nothing to get that process going. And it's ricocheting around the world. I've just been reading in Global Times, which is, as we all know, um, a newspaper published by the Chinese government. Um, not directly. It's owned by the People's Daily, which is the official newspaper of the Chinese Communist Party. But Global Times is known to reflect very closely Chinese government thinking. And I mean, it's absolutely searing about this revelation and of course it makes the point as many people are making you get any kind of peace plan be it from Zelensky or anybody in the west now how can you take it seriously when the original peace plan the roadmap to peace that was created in 2014 2015 I remember the negotiations I remember how intense they were I remember how seriously it was all taken when it turns out that that was all a sham and there was no reality to it and that nobody in the West really made any 
attempt to implement it. So, I mean, who expects a peace plan now? And essentially, that's what that's what Global Times is saying, amongst other things. It says, how can you assume that any agreement you enter into with these people, and it doesn't mean Ukraine, it means the Western powers, how can you assume that agreement will be honoured? So I had a disastrous interview that Merkel gave, lots of speculation about why she did it, but perhaps we shouldn't get over-distracted by that because it's becoming increasingly clear to me that this is now a conflict which isn't going to be resolved through negotiations anytime soon. It's it's basically we're moving deeper into a military outcome. Um, Brian has been talking about wars of attrition, about depleting weapon stocks, about ammunition shortages. Financial Times is now talking about air defense missile shortages in Ukraine. Colonel McGregor uh, tells us that there's now manpower shortages as well. To what extent that's correct, I, I find it personally difficult to judge. But also Ukraine generally not in a good place. Its economy running down well, to the extent that it exists, uh, independent of Western help. And of course, in Europe, a deteriorating picture at the same time. We had a few weeks of optimism. The weather had been fairly mild. Uh, it's now got a lot colder. As I was saying at the start of this program, we've had snow on the streets of London, white snow. It's got much colder. Um, energy bills are rising again. Energy costs across Europe are rising again. The gas reserves are being depleted. They're not being replaced. And the windmills, it turns out, aren't much use in these kind of situations. And generally, a very difficult economic situation in Europe too. And we haven't even started in terms of the economic problems we're going to get in Europe because we're going to be competing for energy against the Asians, against the Chinese, whose economy is going to be reopening. That's, I think, now a given. And who are going to be wanting more and more energy and have the pockets, they have the money to pay for it, and the connections to the Russians to pay for it. And they've also had a massively successful summit meeting in Saudi Arabia between Xi Jinping and the Arab leaders, not just the Saudis. So a situation, deteriorating situation in Ukraine, deteriorating military situation, growing crisis, I think, in terms of weapon stockpiles and all of that. That's Brian's sort of thing, more than mine, to be honest. And of course, we have the situation, the Saudis, the Chinese, all of that coming together. And well, I think we can all say it's things are moving very much in the direction that we've been warning that they would for many months. Yeah, um, I'd like to jump in. And first of all, before anything, uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. And with Brian, it's just the cherry on the Sunday. So thank you so much for this invitation. Uh, insofar as the Merkel's interviews, uh, I do believe that they were two, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. And essentially, she said the same thing in both, yes. which was yes. the Minsk agreement was basically a way to buy time to arm the Ukrainians. Now, you, Alexander, in one of your videos mentioned that you thought that at the time that Merkel had been more or less sincere 
insofar as their efforts, insofar as the Minsk II agreements. I would actually concur. I, w I think that uh, Merkel, the kind of politician that she always is, sort of like, you know, shuffling back and forth and trying mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, 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 where, where the sun is always shining kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that at the time, she was genuine about the Minsk agreements, but mm -hmm. she made no real effort. She never expended any political capital mm -hmm. to implement the Minsk II agreements. And, and this is a pattern with Merkel. She'll only push something if everybody else is going along with it. Mm -hmm. At the time in 2015, when it was evident that the uh, uh, Poroshenko regime forces were going to collapse against the Russian onslaught, then she was in favor of Minsk because mm -hmm. everybody, especially in the West, saw that the Ukrainian program was collapsing. And so she pushed Minsk. But after that, she made no effort because Hollande and then later Macron made no real efforts in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so she sort of like uh, walked away from it, kind of. Mm. And I, I agree with you completely that this um, these two interviews have been a complete disaster for the West. And in the Western media, I'm reading and looking for it, and nobody's really mentioning it. And they, the West is completely blind to how catastrophic these interviews have been, because irrespective of whether, you know, the, the truth is, as you, Alexander, and I believe that, mm. you know, Merkel was semi-sincere insofar as 2015 is concerned, the fact that she's saying now that it was just baloney and that she was just trying to buy time to arm the Ukrainians mm. means that insofar as the East Asia, uh, I mean, Asia and the global South, mm. India, Africa, mm. Latin America, mm. even, people are going to be thinking, well, you know, we can't trust these Westerners at all. Mm. Nothing they say, even if they sign it and approve it by the United Nations Security, Security Council, mm. which Minsk II was approved by mm. the Security Council, it means nothing. And mm. so we cannot trust these people. And you cannot have any kind of long-term relationship with someone whom you do not trust at all, irrespective of the guarantees that they're giving you. And so the West is completely blind, and certainly the leadership is blind, to the catastrophe of these speeches, rather than censuring her mm. and saying, you should retract what you said. We were sincere, you know, even if it's a lie. <laughs> they're just going along with it and they are not seeing the catastrophic reaction on a diplomatic level and a political level in the rest of the world and this is particularly crucial at this time which is so delicate for the west where it is over indebted overextended it has political chaos internally it can't afford to fritter away its foreign relations as catastrophically these two interviews seem to have done that's my opinion on that particular subject. Absolutely. Can I just read from the Chinese commentary? Because this is this just, just goes directly to the point that you've just been making, uh, uh, Gonzalo. So it says this, Merkel's confession about the Minsk agreements also, also showed that some Western countries, particularly the United States, do not honour contractual obligations at all. They can go back on their words so easily. Agreement with the U.S., the agreement the U.S. wants is never about credibility. It is all about interests. An agreement is seen as useful by the U.S. when it advances the country's interests. Otherwise, Washington is always ready to deny it. And then it goes on to say that the U.S. and several other Western countries have become defaulters in the international community. They break their promises because they're protected by Western hegemony with the U.S. at its core. 
and that this has resulted in a distorted international order. And as long as such domination exists, the world will still be victim of power politics rather than a place full of justice and fairness. Now, that, of course, is said by, uh, um, uh, you know, in glo by Global Times. And, you know, you can you can agree with it or not. I personally have no reason <laughs> to doubt it. It seems to me entirely true. I mean, it follows logically exactly from Merkel. Yeah. So, but, I mean, the point is, the Chinese have read Merkel's statement. Merkel was often visiting China. She was cutting lots of deals with the Chinese. She was, you know, always telling them, reassuring them that Minsk was what she wanted to see implemented in Ukraine. And the Chinese, of course, now see the value of all of the, that, uh, uh, you know, merited. And at the same time, and I have to say this also, we have all this meddling going on at the same time. So protests in Mongolia, protests in other places around China, you know, Brian, you've been covering this very well, if I may say. Again, what are the Chinese going to make of all of that? What are the Chinese going to make of all the coverage of the protests? You know, there's little protests that we had in China. I say little protests. I don't want to be demeaning, but they weren't big protests in China about the lockdown restrictions, which, you know, didn't result in the overthrow of Xi Jinping or the fall of the Chinese government and all of that. But why... Why would the Chinese government not make the obvious, draw the obvious conclusions from what all of that means? So, oh, can I make just one observation quickly? Yeah. You know, the the West, <coughs> and the United States in particular, keeps talking about the rules-based order, but the rest of the world is going to be saying, "Well, we're not going to go by your rules-based order because you can change the rules whenever you feel like it." No, thank you. I mean, it's obvious. Exactly. 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 So, I mean, Brian, I mean, you've been doing all these things about all of these protests. I mean, you know, this, this you know, vast tidal wave of protests that's sweeping Asia. What, 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 I mean, what, what are they saying about it in Beijing? Are they shaking and trembling there? Or are they drawing different conclusions? Uh, I mean, the, the protests are already over. But I, I, I just want to say thank you for having me on. It's always an yeah. honor and a pleasure. And it's always great to talk with Gonzalo mm -hmm. as well. Uh, this is not the first time the West has done this. The West collectively, the United States specifically, and then uh, I think everyone is aware that Europe mm. is, is uh, they, they serve West, U.S. interests. They do not serve their own interests because look at what's happening to Europe. They are not pursuing their best interests mm. with the decisions that they're making. But I, I had Carl Za, who's a, a bit of a historian, specifically uh, regarding Chinese history on my channel. And he, he went over in very in-depth what is called the century of humiliation. And all it's about is how the West makes deals with you, blatantly, deliberately betrays them, and then and then does it again and again over and over again. So this is this is for China, this is nothing new at all. I don't I don't think they ever hoped that the US would would deal in, in good mm -hmm. faith. They they go through the motions because they they would like to believe that uh, you know there's a certain way of doing things. We have to at least on our side try to meet them in the middle. But if they never show up, well then we have to continue uh, looking for other ways we can protect our interests, protect our national security. And the same goes for the situation in Ukraine. Russia will go through the motions to to meet the West in the middle for some sort of diplomacy, but they know it's 
they know the West is never going to do it in good faith. If they want positive developments in Ukraine, they need to make it happen on the battlefield. It was the same case in Syria as well. Absolutely. Uh, can I just quickly, by the way, there's been a thing from our viewer, Sanjeeva, um, about uh, Peskov, Putin's spokesman. And I just wanted to quickly say that because there's a story circulating, floating around everywhere, that Putin has cancelled his winter press conference. And it all derives from the utterly bungled way in which Peskov explained that it had been postponed a few weeks until after the new year. And I want to say that I agree with you, Sanjeeva. <laughs> Peskov was once a good spokesman, but I think he's basically lost his way now. So I just wanted to just quickly say that. Well, where are we going? Where is this conflict going? Um, Gonzalo, you're on the spot. What is the mood in that you can see? What is your feeling about the way things are? I mean, we're getting lots of reports about terrible fighting in Bakhmut, massive losses. I get to call it Bakhmut, by the way. Massive yeah. losses by the Ukrainians there. Um, advances by the Russians in all sorts of places. It's To me, it looks very much like uh, what Brian has been saying, not big arrow offensives, but steadily grinding the Ukrainians down. I mean, is that your sense of what's going on? Gonzalo, before you jump in, um, going off of what Sanjeeva posted about Peskov, yeah. um, I'm sure that the collective West is going to say that, you know, Putin has canceled his, uh, yeah. his presser because he's feeling ill, he's sick, yeah. he doesn't want to take questions because Russia's yeah. doing too badly. Yeah. I, my own belief on that is that the fact that they're postponing this big Q&A, the first time in 10 years yeah. they're postponing it, I think that's a bad sign for the collective West. And I think it may allude to something big that's coming yeah. maybe December. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. Yeah, anyway, I just absolutely. wanted to, yeah. to it's just not, pass yeah. that off. To, yeah. But the, the key point is it's not being cancelled. And well, postponed. Peskov yeah, postponed. never postponed. postponed. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. Peskov didn't agree. use those words, but he did it. He, he said it in a very, very confused way, as he always does. But anyway, Gonzalo, two things. Peskov, yeah, uh, Putin. Well, you know, Alex, Alex sort of like read my mind because um, mm. that's, you know, great minds think alike. You know, uh, mm. the fact that they're postponing it, not canceling it, obviously indicates that between now and then, something big is on the horizon. <coughs> something big is going to happen insofar as this conflict. Mm. Uh, now, to answer your question, Alexander, you know, what's the, the, the mood like in Ukraine? Well, insofar as uh, television propaganda is concerned, you know, you would have no idea. If you're following the mass media here in Ukraine, which is all, uh, um, I, forget, I forget the word, when they're all uh, putting out the same program at the same time, you have no idea. And, and uh, the mood here in Kharkov, I can say it's, um, how, could I, how could I put this delicately? Um, if you would ask, you know, uh, uh, 10 people, if, uh, you know, the Russians are going to capture the city, I don't think that more than three or four would be particularly upset with that outcome, okay? Because the pro-Ukrainian people have already left the city long ago. They've had plenty of opportunities. They're, they're gone, and they're not coming back. Okay, now, insofar as Bakhmut is concerned, it, it, you know, Brian is on top of that story better than anybody. The kind of grinding that is going on there is insurmountable in the sense that you know, if they keep on doubling down and trying to protect this godforsaken village or, or town, you know, they're going to wind up throwing away their entire armed force. It's credibly estimated by Doug uh, McGregor 
he said in a very interesting broadcast that he did a couple of days ago that um, the uh, Zelensky regime only has effectively 190,000 men under arms. And that is not enough against this juggernaut that currently is estimated, the Russian juggernaut currently estimated at 540 to 600,000 men at this time. And, and there are still men coming in. That's why the, the figure is flexible. But it's for sure at least 540,000 between the grouping in, in Belarus, the grouping uh, here in Bolgorod, just across um, the border from me, and in the southeast uh, in the Donetsk and the Donbass region. And so, you know, clearly we're, we're coming to the end game of this whole conflict. And I would say that this conflict militarily would have ended quite some time ago were it not for all the NATO contractors who are here. Because what I have been insisting since, you know, since it was explained to me that these Western weapons took months to train on, I obviously assumed, well, then who's going to operate them? Can't be the, the Ukrainian forces, not because they're not capable, but because they simply don't have the time to train on these weapon systems. So it's obviously NATO contractors, men who five minutes ago were, you know, um, in the uniform of their respective armies, Poland, Romania, the United States, uh, Great Britain. And then they resigned and signed a, a contract with the PMC. And now they're here in Ukraine operating these weapons. That, that seemed obvious. Those losses are mounting. As I understand, the Poles have lost at least killed in action a thousand men and the figure is growing. And it's all because they are feeding men into Bakhmut, which is playing directly into the hands of the Russians because the Russians, yeah, they are advancing very incrementally, but their whole strategy is basically to annihilate anybody who tries to defend Bakhmut. And the Zelensky regime keeps on putting in forces like a bad gambler who does not know when to walk away or at least to pull back. And so, you know, once Bakhmut falls, which is an inevitability, I mean, I understand uh, Wagner, uh, the Wagner, excuse me, Wagner, private military contractors are in the outskirts of Bakhmut and, and sort of like already striking into Bakhmut proper. It's inevitable. And so it's just a needless loss of life. And the casualties are horrifying. A thousand men killed in action every day uh, and uh, an equal number of severely wounded and the reason that the ratio of killed to wounded is so low is because many of the men who are severely wounded, uh, if there was a medical uh, system, the medical uh, personnel to save them, they would, they would not have died. Many of them are injured and unable to be uh, attended to, and so they are dying on the battlefield. That's why we're having such a low uh, casualty figure. When you talk about uh, casualties, total casualties in Bakhmut, it's, it's half of those are KIA. And this is a disaster. And, and it, it's a needless loss of life. And for me personally, I find it despicable and, and just heartbreaking because all these men are dying for nothing. And, and the, in, the end of this is inevitable. And the fact that Zelensky is offering this idiotic three-step plan of, you know, give us more weapons, give us more money, and Russia pull out of everything, it, it, it just shows the cynicism and immorality of the Zelensky regime. And I've, I've said previously in other broadcasts long before this, this uh, uh, conflict was concerned that whenever I'm in a foreign country, I never speak of the internal politics because I'm a guest and I consider myself as such and I think it's rude. Uh, it's sort of like if I were to go to your house and tell, start telling you how to decorate your house, you know, I mean, that's not my place. But insofar as this is concerned, on a basic level of humanity, mm -hmm. the actions of the Zelensky regime are despicable. 
and the fact that the West is just egging them on mm. to this useless slaughter of all these young, uh, not so young men anymore, because now they're 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 drafting forty year olds and even fifty year olds to to fight mm. this conflict, literal cannon fodder. Mm. I find it despicable. And, and please forgive me for my rant, but it, it's the way I feel about the situation. Mm. Brian, do you want do you want to add anything? I mean, why are the Ukrainians throwing men into these battles? I mean, I, I mean, it's, 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 it's the American mm. strategy. Brian can mm. talk about it much better than I can. Absolutely. But I mean, again, I mean, I, I'm not a military person at all. I've never fought in any uh, war. I've served in any uh, uniform, anything of this kind. But I mean, the Russians pulled out of Kherson region because they didn't want to sacrifice their men. They pulled out of Kharkiv because they didn't want to sacrifice their men. That might have been embarrassing, but I can understand that. I don't understand why you keep on sending more and more men to die in the same place when it's almost certainly undefendable. And I was reading, I think it was in the Telegraph, here in Britain, mainstream newspaper, that you're outgunned nine to one in Bakhmut, which is what apparent what I I read a Ukrainian soldier say. I mean, what is the logic here? Uh, well, there's a lot to go over here, and and mm. Alexander and Alex, you have both on a daily basis been talking about the situation in Bakhmut, and uh, there's not the Western media sensing that it it might fall soon so they're saying it has absolutely no value and yet they're they're just flooding men and equipment into bakhmut and if you if you look on a map you can see it's part of these uh cities and towns that have been strung together to create these heavily fortified defense lines that have been built up over the last uh, since 2014 essentially and once they punch a hole through that they're going to be able to move yeah because this the, the line has been confining Russian movement and, and the way they move across the battlefield. Once there's a hole there, then the advantage is with Russia. It was just like Papasnaya and uh, Alexander, you've been pointing that out yeah. uh, repeatedly, how that took a while to crack. But once it cracked, uh, Russia was able to fully exploit that. And it, it overwhelmed that defensive line. That's what caused that, def that whole defense line and all of those towns and cities to fall. Mm and pushed Ukraine back. Uh, let's see what, I mean, uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to, there was another point that I wanted to make. Well, while I think, while I think about, well, why are they doing it? Because once they're pushed out, they're not getting, they're not getting back there. Russia knew when they, they withdrew from Kharkov and Kherson, they have, they have options to get that back. Ukraine does not. They're out of trained manpower. They're out of weapons and they're not mm. getting any more of either anytime soon. Mm. How do you see this war going? I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I have to say, I've come very much to your way of thinking about this. I think that the Russians are going to do what they've always said. They're going to grind the Ukrainians down. We're not going to see big arrow offensives. I'm sceptical about some of these claims of, you know, vast advances to the western border from Belarus and things of that kind. I think they're just going to go on grinding down. But what happens? How does a war like this end? I mean, if you go on grinding, is it going to be like the First World War, where the Germans suddenly collapsed in the autumn and had to seek an armistice? 
Is it going to be more like, you know, Berlin in 45? I mean, what is, how does it all end? I mean, what what is the sort of way in which grinding attrition wars conclude? Well, I mean, it's a really good question. We mm-hmm. we cannot say for sure the best we can do is speculate, <laughs> but I, I, I believe that Russia is going to continue this incremental grinding down of Ukrainian defenses, manpower, infrastructure, everything. Uh, they're they're preparing forces, say in Belarus and in in and in other areas, perhaps to to go toward Kharkov, but I I'm not sure that they're actually going to do that. They're going to keep the pressure on and where Ukrainian forces break, where the fighting capacity of Ukrainian forces collapses, maybe they'll use those forces that they've prepared to exploit that. Uh, that's how I see it. It's the safest, uh, surest bet. If you just uh, pick some place along the the line of contact and just p- try to push through, you're going to lose men and machines. No matter how well it goes for you, you're going to lose a lot doing that. That's that's why Russia has been avoiding it, and that's what we've seen Ukraine do. This is what they've been doing. That's why Russia isn't doing it. They uh, go straight into Russian defenses, and they're losing uh, uh, their their whole army essentially. And you can't get that back. Russia may have the capacity to build back its losses, but it's some, something that's obviously better if they, they can preserve it and, and just do the slow grind. It's very conservative, not spectacular, not exciting. Mm. Uh, people want to see these big arrow offenses, but mm. what you want to see and what is most realistic are two different things. Somebody yeah, I, I, have a, I have a vested interest in how this conflict is going to progress, obvious reasons. And I've been reading quite a bit on the uh, Kharkov, uh, uh, the battles, plural, uh, for Kharkov uh, that occurred during the Second World War. And it, it would seem to me that if any kind of big arrow offensive were to occur, it would come out of Volgorod to the south of the city of Kharkov, mm-hmm. uh, slicing um, south and west and basically creating a pincer uh, uh, with the Donbass. And, uh, and, and covering the forces, sort of like basically a dash to Dnepropetrovsk, if you look at the, at the map. And so uh, it, it seems that if there were a big arrow offensive, uh, that's how it would happen to encircle and annihilate the remaining forces that are in the Donbass region. Mm-hmm. Now, as to whether this is going to be a sudden collapse, like in, in the fall of 1918, when the Germans basically just, just ran out of gas and just collapsed, or if it's going to be like you know uh, April 1945, where it's you know the fighting for Berlin block by block, um, mm. neither outcome would surprise me. But at this mm. time, it seems to me that it's more likely a sudden collapse, a sudden collapse mm. of morale. Do keep in mind when uh, Ursula von der Leyen uh, said publicly that at least 100,000 uh, Ukrainian officers, mm. as she called them, Ukrainian mm. personnel, of course, when she said that. Um, that was big news to a lot of people here. They had no idea that the losses were that high. They had this notion that it was, um, how could I put it? There was this notion that there were maybe in the range of 15,000 killed in action and that this whole conflict was being like basically the Russians by attacking their infrastructure, mm. uh, the, the, specifically the electrical system in order to cut the rail lines, mm. uh, that this was sort of like Russian annoyance, but the war is sort of like what's been going on the Donbass for the last eight years, but just a little bit expanded. 
the notion that 100,000 men had been lost and also the notion that that figure that Ursula von der Leyen said was probably a lie and that it's a lot mm -hmm. higher, then that sort of like, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that made a lot of people sit back. There are a lot of videos of uh, Zelensky regime units uh, complaining publicly, you know, showing the whole group of them saying that they need more weapons, that they need more medical, that they need evacuation, that this is not possible. I mean, uh, my thinking at this time, if I had to put odds, and I hate to, to, to use this uh, particular tool, but to get a, give a sense of it, I would say it's hmm. three chances out of five that the whole thing simply collapses at some point, at some tipping point that, of course, retrospectively might be obvious, but now that we're living in the, in the time before this tipping point happens, we're blind to it. But there will be this moment and potentially Bakhmut, the fall of Bakhmut, where it just collapses. And that's my thinking at this time, barring, of course, anything really radically unforeseen. And finally, a point. Do keep in mind, when you have over half a million soldiers, and you're clearly gearing up to have closer to 650, maybe even 700,000 soldiers, that is an occupying force. That's mm. what you need to occupy the entire Ukrainian territory as a military occupation in terms of the manpower necessary to cover this, this country, because this country is the size of France, the size of Texas. And so my thinking at this time, whether it's a big arrow offensive or the Russians continue to grind away until there's a sudden collapse, it, it doesn't really matter in that regard. It's clear that this uh, Russian army is an occupying force. I mean, and, and clearly, especially with what Merkel has said, they have no intention of allowing any NATO troops to cross the border from Poland into Ukraine, at least not in force. They are going to capture the whole country and hold it. What they do afterwards is, is a subject of debate, but there is no doubt in my mind that they're going to capture the whole thing and hold it. And, mm -hmm. and they'll start reorganizing it and then slicing it up as they see fit. An American, by the way, reminded me that that was also how the American Civil War ended. I mean, you know, we always think of Appomattox, but there was no actual moment when the Confederacy capitulated. It just imploded. Wow. And and there was no, you know, there was no surrender document or anything like that. And it, 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 and, it and no final battle in a sense in fact the last skirmish uh, between confederate and union troops was a confederate victory but by this point the confederacy had so completely run out of steam that it, it, it's just all imploded. of its institutions it just imploded so and you know i i do think you know the that the civil war that that's another example of an attrition war and just just to continue with this and i won't be a moment but Somebody, um, 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 a German person, pointed out to me that this is actually very much the Russian style to fight attrition wars. We tend to think of, you know, big arrow offences, which is what the Russians, to some extent, during, did during the Second World War. But the, the Russian style of war, which has been shown in places like the Middle East, Syria, Angola beforehand, in Egypt in the 1960s and early 70s. It was, again, very much be methodical, be systematic, take it step by step, uh, um, grind the enemy down, conserve your forces, avoid big losses. Just just mentioning all of those things. And I just wanted, I, I remembered what I was going to say. Alexander, you were talking about how Ukraine has outgunned nine to one 
in Bakhmut. And yet we're reading these we're reading these stories elsewhere in the Western media about uh, Russia carrying out human wave attacks and, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, just charging into machine gun nests. It makes oh, yeah. absolutely no sense. If you're if you outnumber, I mean, if you have the enemy outgunned with artillery of all things, this this long range means of, of waging war, why would you be charging across the battlefield with your infantry? It makes absolutely no sense. Mm. And this is something that we've been seeing across the Western media since this all began. They're admitting how the warfare is being conducted, <coughs> and yet they're making up these narratives about Russian losses that s are simply illogical. They make absolutely no sense. There's no reason why Russia would do that if they have this advantage. And they're going, you, we can see how incremental and slow Russia advances on the battlefield. It's specifically because they're depending on that long range fire and not charging in with infantry. It makes, makes no sense. And they wouldn't do it and they're not doing it. And so, uh, that, but that's just the way that, I, I, uh, I don't know how else to say it, that the, the Western media and their audience are trying to cope with this. Uh, well, it, claim that Brian, Russia is losing these. And Brian, Brian, it's basically projection. That's all that the Western media exactly. and the Western leadership class does. Hmm. Well, can exactly. I just say, it's also something that is always said about Russians. I mean, I remember as a schoolboy reading stories about the, the Eastern Front in the Second World War of the, the Red Army using human wave tactics i even remember one you know russian soldiers storming german trenches linked hands without guns that just came pouring in in tidal waves i've spoken to german soldiers who fought in that war and so it was nothing like that nothing like that ever happened it's yeah. a complete invention and it's a, it's an extraordinary to see that particular tro propaganda trope being revived being revived again um, well, it's, and it's a, it's a trope that goes back to napoleon that was part of the reason that that he he mm. gave as justification for his failure in russia that they were human waves and there was nothing to be done about it and there's mm. also that very famous photograph of a russian soldier i do believe he was a communist party member mm. uh, uh, uh one of the one of uh, you know the the the, um, the political leadership He's this uh, famous young man who is holding a gun and, and egging on his compatriots mm -hmm. to go to, to attack. And he himself was killed. I, I forget mm -hmm. the name of the soldier. It's a very famous photograph. I'm sure you, mm -hmm. we've all seen it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that it comes from that, that, that stereotypical notion that the Russians carry out human waves attacks when they don't. They don't at all. But if the Zelensky regime forces now, that is essentially what they are doing. They are, and Brian, I'd really like to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, to, to discuss that how um, these NATO-controlled troops, which is what's going on in Ukraine, how they are applying NATO tactics that perhaps served in, in, in areas of insurgency in the Middle East, but are a disaster in this particular conflict. Well, I, I'm not so sure that they're doing that. Uh, and what they're doing, it, it might look like human wave attacks, but I've actually well, read uh, U.S. military papers that talk about how to defeat the Russian battalion tactical group, this incredibly powerful Russian military unit packed full of long range weapons. And they've got the drones and they're able to point this arsenal in a, in a particular direction and just erase anything on the battlefield. So what the US and others in the West training or advising Ukraine are telling them to do is to rush toward uh, the battalion tactical group where these long range weapons are located uh, 
close that gap as quickly as possible and with as many men as possible to try to overwhelm it. They can only target a certain number of uh, vehicles, armored vehicles and positions at a time. And if they do it quick enough and they're coordinated enough, they feel they could uh, either overwhelm the battalion tactical group or force it to withdraw because they're adverse to heavy losses. And that that seems to be exactly what they're doing. Un unfortunately for Ukraine, Russia is not just going to maintain the way that they're going to adapt as well. They're going to adapt mm. to this tactic. And at this point, you don't just have a bunch of battalion tactical groups scattered on the battlefield. They are creating defensive positions, fortifications, uh, trench networks. So that, that really is very limited how you can use that. And by the way, I mean, that's what they were doing in Kherson. It didn't work. Didn't work. They, they, uh, Russia was defeating those uh, wave after wave. They were defeating them. So uh, that, that seems to be what's going on. I mean, I, I cannot say 100% for sure, but the information that, that we see, what we hear, uh, that seems to be the most likely explanation. Yeah. That's not working. So war is going badly for Ukraine. Zelensky has now come up with a peace plan. Is a possibility of a negotiated peace coming from the West possible? If the United States told Zelensky tomorrow we need to find a way out, could Zelensky do it? What? what because I get the sense that there's all sorts of people in Kiev who... Uh, around Zelensky, who don't want any kind of peace at all. What, what is your sense about this, um, Gonzalo? No, there's not going to be any peace because of Merkel's uh, interviews. Mm -hmm. The Russians, mm -hmm. the, the Russians have realized that they cannot do business with the West mm -hmm. on, on on anything. They're not even trying to mm -hmm. negotiate strategic nuclear missiles. Uh, you know, the Russians have given up on the West. I mean, this is something catastrophic for the West because so much of Western European prosperity depended on having good relations with Russia and cheap energy from Russia. Uh, and that's gone. That's up in smoke. And what is crucial is that over these 10 months, the population in Russia has become aware of this. And they are realizing that Putin was right about the West, basically. And so they want nothing to do with the West. It's over. And, and Russia as a society, I have, uh, I'm in touch with certain people in Russia, and, and it's enough of a swath of people that can give me a fairly decent appreciation of it. And of course, there are telegram channels and what have you. The Russians as a people are turning to the East. They, they have realized that you know, the West is not their future. The only people who think that the West is their future have actually left Russia. They've gone to Georgia. They've gone to the Baltics. They've gone elsewhere, far and wide. Those pro-Western Western Russians have left. And so the, the, the Russians who remain, are, are they don't trust them. And so I think that if the West were to suddenly say, Zelensky, you have to negotiate, and they, they made all the boohaha of negotiations, uh, Putin would not trust them. And even if he were to be so foolish as to engage in such negotiations, the Russian people themselves would say, no, yet, no because you can't trust these people. So the, the, the end of this conflict is inevitable. Complete capture of Ukraine. That's the inevitable outcome of this conflict because the West has proven itself to be so untrustworthy. 
Mm. Can I just say, I mean, I obviously I have uh, acquaintances in Russia. I don't pretend that they're a representative sample of the Russian population. They're the more it, it, so, you know, so higher socioeconomic demographics, the people who speak English, for example, yeah. and who were in the business community, because that's the kind of context that I used to have. And uh, many of them critical of Putin, by the way. And I, I have to say, I agree with you completely that the mood, it's been interesting to watch how it's both hardened and about the West and become more confident as well um, as the war has progressed. And here it's less about the war than about the country's ability to cope with the sanctions challenge, because there was this huge belief among many, many people in Russia that you know, all the West needed to do was blow and the Russian economy would come dump, tumbling down like a house of cards. And remember, I'm talking about business people. So they were very worried about all of this. And they're absolutely astonished that it hasn't happened. And that gives them much more confidence about pretty much everything. But can I just say, and this is where, um, you know, I'd, I'd also be interested in your thoughts about this, Brian, but... One of the things that people get wrong about the Russian-Chinese relationship, which is now going to become ever more important, is that it was the Russians who wanted to be friends with China because they wanted China's support in Russia's long-standing face-off against the West. In my experience, it was the other way around. It was the Chinese constantly telling the Russians, come work with us. We respect you. You can trust us. The West, you can't trust because whatever smiles they put on when they meet you, deep down, they disrespect you. And this is what I now read again in that Global Times commentary piece, which it reads, it says things like this. The former German leaders' uh, 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 comments tear down the last remaining bit of the friendly mask some countries put on with Russia. Oh, In the eyes of some Western countries, Russia is just a diplomatic and political alien. And these countries have never stopped suppressing Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. On the other hand, Russia has always considered itself a European country, expecting to build trust with the West. Thus, it is understandable when Putin expressed disappointment and a sense of betrayal from Merkel's words. Now, I can't help but feel, when I read comments like that, and by the way, this isn't quite an editorial, but it's a comment piece on the entire Global Times editorial board, and it's clearly, I think, been checked with the officials, you know, higher up in the system. I can't help but think when I read that, that it's somebody in Beijing telling the Russians, I told you so. <laughs> I think exactly. And I mean, let's just let's just boil it down real simple. Russia has a huge amount of cheap energy available and China is on its way up, has a massive industrial base, and it needs the energy. So just right there, everything makes sense. And then when you consider 
both Russia and China believe in the primacy of the nation state. They don't believe in this, this concept of a unipolar world order where everyone needs to get in line. They, they believe in sovereignty. They respect each other's sovereignty, that it just makes it all that much easier for them to do business. Then when you add on top of that, the fact that the, the reason why <coughs> Russia and China cannot deal with the West, because the West is not looking for a relationship. It is not looking to work with Russia or China. It is looking to encircle, contain, divide, destroy, subordinate them. That's That has been the plan since the end of World War II. Before that, after World War II, all the way up until now, they have policy paper after policy paper explaining it in detail. These are policy papers that are that are commissioned by different parts of the U.S. government. So there's no there's no doubt in their mind that this can't happen because the U.S., its allies, they don't want it to happen. And so what do you do with someone who is openly out to get you and you and some other person you work together? It's, it's, it's just uh, it's just logical okay. for them. Yeah, and, and, and the, the thing is, see, the the long, the more the West, uh, um, you know, it, it does this and, and reveals itself to be so duplicitous, mm-hmm. the the less the incentive. And the key issue, I, I keep circling back to it, is the West is economically broken. It's over indebted mm-hmm. beyond its means, and and the, and the bill is coming due now. And one could argue that the reason that the West is having this sort of like weird spasm, insofar as um, Russia is concerned, insofar as China is concerned, is because the leadership classes in the West are inherently aware of the fact that that the credit card is getting maxed out. And the West, because of its deindustrialization over the last 40 odd years, does not have the wherewithal to maintain the standard of living for its people that it enjoyed for so many decades, very much on the backs of Russian cheap energy and cheap consumer goods from China it's no longer going to be possible. And so this leadership class is worried that the people, you know, if you don't give the people bread and circus, then you have a revolution on your hands. Now, the, the people get today in the West get plenty of circus, but they're starting not to get any bread. I mean, no eggs in the UK in London. I mean, come on. And so I think that that is why the leadership class is having this, this spasm, this thrashing out uh, mm. Because they know that the, the the end of the road is here for the West, and mm. so they're fix, figuring that something might change, and so mm. they are fomenting these conflicts with Russia and mm. China. Mm. Can I just say what what um, Gonzalo was just referencing is something I've mentioned on previous programs, and we were discussing just before we started this program, which is that there's a I mean, there is clear signs of economic distress and crisis here in Britain, one of which is that the country has run out of eggs. You can't find them in shops at the moment. And that's only one example. Now, I just wanted to say a few things, just just following on from some of the points which have just been made, which is, of course, that because I've been going to Russia since the late 90s and the early 2000s, I remember in particular, time when the Russian economy was getting back onto its feet, period of optimism, period of optimism amongst Russian people that I knew that Russia would be accepted into the West. I can remember all of these people that I was talking about, who, as I said, are mainly business people. They were actually, at that time, very keen for Russia to join the European Union. Sounds extraordinary today, but that is the kind of mindset that they have. 
had at, the, at that time. And of course, there were all these cultural connections, Russians hugely interested in Western culture. They all read British novels, French novels. They listen to the music, all of that kind of thing. It didn't, wouldn't have occurred to anybody in Moscow at that time to, um, you know, distance Russia from the West, to prefer China, the relationship with China to that of the West. Few people on the fringes, mainly older people with sort of communist beliefs, but they were not really significant. The extent to which that has changed has been remarkable and it's gathered pace. Now, just the other day, one of these most pro-EU people that I was talking about from the early 2000s. He sent me an email saying, can you please provide me with all the articles you can about the collapsing economic situation in Britain? And he sort of, shall we say, getting a certain amount of schadenfreude from it. And when you talk about the fact that our credit card is maxed out, we're going to be seeing more and more of that because what is inflation at the end of the day? Inflation is like a fever during an illness. It is a sign that that illness is there, that that infection is there. It's a sign that things are going wrong. It's We have an increasingly feverish economy in the West. And if anybody tells you that you know, inflation in the West is coming down. You know, we have the odd shift. It goes down 0.1% one month, goes up the next. If anybody tells you it's going down, that is not the evidence I'm actually seeing every day in the um, economy, at least certainly here in Britain. And I expect energy prices to start rising again very soon. And that's going to create, increase that fever even further. Yeah, because the, um, the economic situation is... Oh, I'm sorry, Brian, please. I, I, I was just going to say, I saw someone in the comment section talk about how Russia and China are not anti-West, uh, but they, they're realistic about the, the danger, the special interests driving the West at the moment, how dangerous they are. They want to keep... Uh, they want to remain civilized toward the West. They don't want to burn any bridges or close any doors because they hope... Uh, eventually, once this small handful of, of interests collapses or disappears mm. or supplanted, they'll be able to do business with them. Yeah. They, you know, China wants to do business with everyone. They don't, mm. they don't put these uh, constraints on others. Well, you have to be like this, or we won't do business with you. So, I think, I think that's an important point to to bring up. That they're not anti, they're not anti-West, but they're being realistic about. The, the people running things, driving policy right now, are not interested in having any kind of relationship. I yeah, think no. that I, I would have agreed with that um, a, a year ago. I think that certainly where Russia was concerned, it wasn't anti-West, just like China. Perhaps because China has been more realistic about its relationships with the West and has never had these cultural pulls that the Russians undoubtedly have done. I think there is more of a sense of betrayal, more of a sense of anger in Russia than there is in China. And I think you will find some people in Russia who say, well, enough's enough. We've been played by these people for long enough now. We don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. And I haven't, you are starting to see these sentiments spread and they're spreading amongst people who 
would certainly not have held them once upon a time. As I said, this person, this friend of mine, who's now gloating, and he quite openly is gloating, about the economic problems in Britain, for example, which it would never have occurred to him to do. He was educated, partly educated here. Well, the, the thing about Russia is that ever since Peter the Great, mm. essentially nipped uh, 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 indigenous Russian culture at the bud and turned Russia towards the West so aggressively. <coughs> the second largest city, uh, St. Petersburg, was founded specifically to be a window on the West. Mm. I, I think that Russia has always uh, uh, felt insecure, uh, culturally, certainly, and politically to a lesser extent, feeling that they are a European country, but even though they're enormous, they're, they've always had this cultural sense that they're kind of like, like the, the kid brother of the, of the Western European you know, uh, siblings. And they've always felt insecure, ridiculously in my estimation, because, I mean, Russia has provided the West, our, our, our Western culture, with some of the landmarks insofar as literature, music, poetry, uh, painting, you know, and, and, and certainly ballet. And, and so uh, the notion that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Russia is the ugly step-sibling of, of the bunch has always weighed mm. on the Russian imagination. And to mm. tell you the truth, I think that... It, I, I do believe that this break, this forced divorce that mm. the West has imposed on Russia and sort of like this awakening of, of Russia as a people will mm. have them turning far more internally and, mm. and towards the East and the South and, and away from Russia, breaking this, this, this uh, cultural mm. bugaboo that they've had ever mm. since Peter the Great. I mean, mm. do keep in mind, you know, much of uh, war and peace, for instance, a lot of the dialogue is in French. Because, you know, the, the Western, the uh, Russian elites, rather, consistently looked to the West and used their language. Mm. The educated people spoke French back in the 19th century and then English in the 20th century because, mm. you know, the West, the West is the best. And mm. I, I think that this break will finally end this to yep. the Russians' great uh, uh, benefit, quite frankly. Mm. The official language of the Russian court, the Tsar's court, up to 1917 was French. <laughs> People don't actually know, but it was. Yeah. And there was a whole theatre in uh, um, a part of the Imperial Theatres, the whole theatre in um, St. Petersburg were the only plays that were performed, were performed in French. I mean, it's a must. This sense of cultural and... and uh, this, this cultural second tier mm. thinking that the Russians mm. had without realizing that they are an enormous nation, enormously powerful, uh, mm. not, not just in terms of natural resources, but human potential. They are the mm. largest population in Europe. And uh, they, mm. they, culturally, they didn't mm. seem to understand it. And I think that this translated into a, onto a political level, that they were always mm. like playing catch up with the West culturally and politically when they really are mm. the top dog of Europe. I mean, yeah. that, that's to my way of thinking. Yeah. yeah. Can I, can, because we've had a number of questions I, I've seen about the situation in the Balkans with Serbia and Kosovo. Have either of you any thoughts about that? Why? Because, I mean, we, we talk about peace. I mean, with this thing is our, our program is about Zelensky's great peace plan, which I think we managed to, to deal with quite quickly. But in fact, all our talk has been about war. And here we see another war that seems to be brewing. I mean, what, what are your feelings? Is this a, well, what, what are your thoughts about it, Brian? Well, I, 
I've been following your and, and Alex's uh, mm. take on that because it seems like you're you're both much more knowledgeable about mm. the, the specifics. Mm. But what I can say is that the, the U.S. has made no secret that <clears throat> part of putting pressure on Russia, trying to overextend it is not just one one, one specific conflict or project it is a number of them. So uh, Ukraine was a big one. It was a it was a, a red line that they were going to deliberately cross to provoke Russia. But there were all sorts of economic uh, pressure points that they were going to push. And then they were talking about other conflicts along Russia's periphery that they could uh, stir up to force Russia to divert resources and attention elsewhere. So that's exactly what they're doing. This is uh, there. Um, they were they were trying to get things going in many different places, and they're going to continue doing this, which, uh, again, and it's happening at a time where Zelensky is talking about some sort of peace plan, which includes just sending more weapons, more of the same. And the U.S. is also going to do more of the same. They're, they're not going to give up without a fight. Uh, things look bleak. And so they're going to do something somewhere else where they feel like maybe they could make some progress. Mm. Let's stir something up there uh, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, somewhere mm. in Central Asia, maybe inside of Russia, whatever we can do, let's try to do it because we're definitely mm. not getting much done in, in Ukraine on the battlefield. Yeah. I completely mm. agree with Brian. Uh, the issue is in Mongolia, Mongolia of all places, you know, between sandwich between China and Russia. That's ridiculous. But this is Another effort, and insofar as the Serbian situation, which I have not been following as closely as you, Alex, or you, Alexander, mm. but from what I am understanding, um, and, and <clears throat> this is an extrapolation, my mm. sense is that we're going to have another NATO campaign in Serbia. Mm. I think that they are stirring things up as harshly as possible to deliberately bring in NATO, have another 1999, mm. um, or, or what year was it? I forget. You know, another, yeah, uh, another campaign <coughs> in, in mm. Serbia mm. deliberately to provoke the Russians into uh, uh, overextending themselves, perhaps participating on the side of Serbia, because I think that NATO and the State Department fundamentally understand or have come to understand that they cannot fight Russia directly on Ukraine mm. territory. They, they just can't. And so I think that they're going to try to find another way to engage the Russians militarily, which would be Serbia, and mm -hmm. potentially have, you know, NATO versus Russia in Serbia. And so I think that for the Russians, it's going to be a terrible decision that they will have to make. And I think that Russians being the mm -hmm. pragmatic people that they are, they will make it, and they will decide to cut Serbia loose. Because mm -hmm. as, as a practical geographical matter, they mm. cannot realistically supply Serbia with all it would need to fight NATO. And so mm. it will be another despicable act of aggression on the part mm. of NATO against Serbia. And mm. that's what I'm thinking at this time. But I do believe that there will be bombings in Serbia, just like in 1999. I think that yeah. that's the end game. I, 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 I think that probably it is the end game. I'm not sure it's going to work out quite in the way that you think though Gonzalo because I'm going to ask this question I'm going to ask it to Brian Brian you go you, I mean you do this brilliantly and I also want to say I find it astonishing that you're able to read these horrible briefings <laughs> that uh, come out of the Pentagon all the time but who is overextending whom 
I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, I mean, this is the question Absolutely. that I do ask myself. Yeah. We now have another um, $10 billion appropriation, I think, in the new defense bill for Taiwan, for example. This at a time when the Pentagon is running out of ammunition, supposedly. I mean, they're running out of 155 millimeter shells. So, I mean, who is, who actually is getting overextended here? That's a good point. And let's just say that the best case scenario for the US and NATO, mm. somehow they, they get regime change in Serbia, and then what? And then, okay, they have one more nation uh, in Europe that's going to go along with the sanctions. Is that going to make any difference when, when India and China are still buying Russian oil? I don't think so. Uh, and then, a, as you point out, the, the situation with weapons and ammunition, they've run out of stocks that they can draw from now things that actually tangibly exist. And then I was looking through their procurement plans over the next uh, five, maybe seven years, maybe longer. And mm -hmm. it's not even coming close to, to meeting the requirements that just Ukraine needs on the battlefield, not even close. And if they can't even do that, how are they going to manage all of these other conflicts that they are preparing for? The, the US and its allies have prepared for these short, intense clashes with uh, country, you know, countries that are not developed, that have uh, antiquated military equipment, poor training. And they've built their army around all of this. Look at what Russia has done. They have built their, their stockpiles, their current force for this kind of intense, protracted, uh, large-scale warfare. And we have to assume that they've done the same thing with their industry over all of these years. And the mm. U.S. has done the exact opposite. They've they've done mm. it for these tiny, tiny conflicts all over the place. They they never needed this this amount or this the mm. quality, the type of weapons. And they to in order to switch over to that, it takes years and it takes a lot of willpower because there's no profit in it for the for the arms industry that would be building these these weapons and producing this ammunition. So yeah, it just seems like desperation in, in mm. fact regarding Serbia. Yeah. I mean, can can I just to talk to this point because as I think I've discussed in some other in another program that I did. I'm actually I unlike most people who talk about these things, I have visited Russian factories. Um, including one where I wasn't supposed to be, by the way. The, it's an air, airspace factory where um, I was told, please don't speak English <laughs> because that might attract uh, attention. But anyway, but the point is, the thing that immediately struck me about these factories is that they are enormous and that they possess enormous capacities. And they are built like that. It, to Western mind... That looks inefficient because you have all this, you know, em, you know, lots of machines that are not doing things. But the point is, they are designed to be switched on and to produce in enormous numbers if the order comes down to do that. And that's something, by the way, which is very, very much embedded in the way that the Russian industrial system operates. So, yes, I am not surprised that they could crank out hundreds of thousands of shells and hundreds of thousands of cruise missiles and think, well, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of cruise missiles and hundreds of drones and things of this kind, because that is how the Russian industrial system has been formed. 
It may not be cost effective, but in a conflict like this, it works. And they don't have to be cost effective because these enormous factories are state owned, which is completely different. So, you know, they don't have to make, uh, as it happens, cumulatively, the whole system does make a kind of profit, apparently. But the individual parts don't have to. And this is, again, something in the West that we just don't see. Now, the United States has the best, oh, I, biggest sorry, intelligence sorry to, system. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, just a, a quick tidbit that you, you'd find interesting in, insofar as what you were just saying about the industrial capacity of Russia to create weapons. Uh, I, I do believe it was Douglas McGregor in a recent interview, he mentioned the fact that some of the debris of uh, uh, Russian uh, missiles, of the missile strikes that have been going on for the last couple of months, they recovered them and realized that they were manufactured this year. Yeah. And and that is 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 a data point that goes directly to what you're saying. The yeah. Russians are cranking this stuff out right now. And and so in terms of not having enough ammunition, it's just absurd. Uh, I, 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 I was looking for the article just now. It's New York Times article and it's Ukraine, you know, Ukrainian intelligence, whatever that even means. <clears throat> Admitting, so this is just what they're admitting, that they believe Russia is making at least 40 uh, cruise missiles of, of different types per month. And it's, it's probably higher than that. But even if it was just 40, uh, that, that's, that's more, than, more than Ukraine is making. And more, it doesn't matter how many the U.S. is making because they can't give them to Ukraine to, to use against Russia. So uh, just, that's just something to think about as, as we have mm. this conversation. Mm. I mean... The point is, I was going to say this, the U.S. has the most elaborate intelligence gathering system in the world. Are they unaware of this? <laughs> do, 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 they, do they not understand that, you know, the Russian industrial system is rather more, um, as I said, rather bigger, perhaps, than at least the military industrial system is differently organized and that it can be cranked out in this way? Did they not understand also the limitations of their own? industrial system i mean are, are they blind to these things what is making them so blind by the way i think they are blind I, I i mean i still read people in britain who can't quite get around the fact that you know making weapons for us is not as easy as it once was but i mean how have we lost touch with the facts so completely well, i think well, if you Go ahead. I'll go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. No, no. Uh, Larry Johnson or Ray McGovern, when they talk about uh, when they were doing uh, intelligence at the CIA mm -hmm. and they were talking about how, you know, you're, you're supposed to show them all of this information. And then what, what has happened over time is that it's become very political. They're showing things to people, uh, things that they want to see rather than what they need to see. And then, of course, you can show them all of this information, decision makers, and then they can just cherry pick what they what they want to use and just discard things that make them feel uncomfortable. They're not being honest. They're not being honest with themselves. They do not, uh, you know, in the in the art of war, they say, know yourself, know your enemy. And if you don't, you what you have no chance. And this is exactly the, the road the whole West has gone down. That they'll have the information available to them, but they just don't want to look at it or use it. Mm.
Gonzalo, I'm going to say something else because I one of the things that I've noticed, and this is being in Britain, is that over the last 40 so years, um, what has happened is that an awful lot of intellectual energy, at least in Britain, and I think also in the United States, has been diverted into the wrong things. I mean, instead of engineering, we do financial engineering, just one example. We, 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 we've lightened our economy in all sorts of ways because the incentives encourage people to go that way. I, I, my, my wife works as an academic and, you know, once upon a time, not very long ago, less, less so now, actually, um, they all used to, all the students she taught, they all used to think about going into the financial services industry because, frankly, that was how you became rich. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people in finance on, on three continents, mm. as a matter of fact, mm. and, uh, you know, a lot of them are engineers. Uh, a, a lot of them are guys who you know, 40, 50 years ago would have gone into the aerospace industry or, mm. or the car manufacturing business or what have you. Mm. And because do keep in mind that the, the math is all the same insofar as finance or mm. building a product. And so a lot of them are just uh, um, because they're paid so highly from the get go. They're like, I'm not I'm going to get my aeronautical engineering degree, but I'm not going to go and work for NASA where I'll get paid a pittance. I'm going to go and work for mm. Goldman Sachs. They'll pay me, you know, 250, 250,000 out of the gate with a potential bonus of, uh, you know, another 150 per year, depending on performance. Mm -hmm. That's going to be 400 grand after taxes. I'll walk away with 200,000 compared mm -hmm. to, say, 60,000 before taxes at the Ford Motor Company. There's yeah. no choice. And mm -hmm. so uh, that's what's happened. The best and the brightest have gone to unproductive directions mm -hmm. that are certainly profitable for those banks for those uh, re uh, real estate ventures mm. and what have you. I mean, mm. uh, the, the entire fire industry, uh, uh, mm. finance, mm. insurance, real estate, they've gone there, but they haven't gone into productive directions insofar as the economy. And this points to the fact that the West, especially the United States, has never had a coherent industrial policy. They haven't even tried to have a coherent industrial policy since the 19th century and the uh, the American method, or what was it called? The, the American system, mm. the, the one, you know, the tariffs and trades and so forth. The, the United States has gone completely laissez-faire insofar mm. as industrial policy. And this is what's led to this disaster, deindustrialization of the United States mm. and of the greater West. And furthermore, uh, the, the current leadership class, they, they I've said this metaphor many times before, they act like trust fund babies with a limitless trust fund mm. insofar as industrial output, insofar as uh, uh, financial ability, insofar as political power. Mm. And so they, they think that their credit card is endless. Some of the mm. smarter ones realize that it's not endless, and those are the ones who are starting to panic. But mm. in general, across the elite class in the United States and in the Western democracies, the cosmopolitan elite that we're all aware mm. of, they have no idea that their trust fund has dwindled to nothing. And, and so they're going to have the shock of their lives when all of a sudden everything goes just just goes south in a big way, which I think is going to be 2023. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, the, the point is that basing your entire economy around, you know, the fire part of the economy, you know, mm -hmm. finance, insurance, all those sort of things. It's all very well, but it's not it's not doesn't provide you with the mechanisms, the, 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 the industry that you need to wage war. 
I mean, yeah, war is all about is all yeah. about machines uh, yeah, uh, I mean, and and plants and yeah, churning and, and, ammunition out. Yeah, and and do keep in mind that a lot of economists mm. are cheerleading this deindustrialization of the West. They call oh, it yeah. the post-industrial economy, as if it were mm. a good thing. And you know, it's it's technology and information and all <laughs> this nonsense, as if this is going to make up for the fact that you're not mm. producing enough weapons, you're not mm. producing enough food, you're not producing the things that people need on a daily basis. Mm. You know, I mean, you have these Bitcoin billionaires, and and mm. they're billionaires based on. Nothing on mm -hmm. just air, literally, mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is supposed to be a good thing. And, and mm -hmm. this air is added into the GDP, which is the most pernicious metric mm -hmm. imaginable insofar as measuring an economy is concerned. Mm -hmm. And so people have this incredibly false sense of security because they say, oh, look at Russia, look at its trivial GDP. It can't even compare to Italy's or something like that. But yeah, Italy's uh, GDP is propped up by debt by uh, goodwill assets, which is basically nothing, mm. uh, by fictitious pricing of mm. uh, asset classes mm. that has been deliberately inflated by the mm. central banks, both the Central Bank of um, the European Union, the, the European Central Bank, and by the Federal Reserve. And so th there's this false sense of security, of richness, mm. wealth. If we did, like Andrei Martinov uh, insists on this, if we were to start measuring uh, you know, item line, uh, line item by line item, the industrial output of, say, Russia versus any of the nations of the West, we would mm. realize that Russian industry is far superior to all of Western Europe added up mm. together. That's a fact. Mm. But mm. people measured by GDP, which is nonsensical, but yeah. it's a useful fiction that, like to Brian's point, it props up what the leadership class wants to see as opposed mm. to what's actually happening. And, and mm. the thing is, we four are dissidents here because mm. we're saying this is what's actually happening. Mm. And the mainstream is pushing the lies. Yeah. Can, can I just say something else, which is that um, one of the other factors, uh, one of the other differences is, of course, that you talk about, I go to Chinese publications when they talk about manufacturing and the, the 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 way they go about this is that china makes the complete cycle it it it, it makes the subcomponents it then does everything together so that all the bits and parts of manufacturing come together in one piece and they're very very insistent that it's this ability to master every part of the production process that in fact is what gives Chinese manufacturing its depth, its 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 enormous capacity to surge, and 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 its flexibility as well. So that, for example, with microchip production, which is a topic which is much spoken about today, China already has all the all the pieces together which you can put together to you know build high end microchips if it needs to which of course the United States doesn't. It has to try and import, get Taiwan to open factories and things of that kind. Now, the other thing is this, if you're going to import your goods, because that's what we do in the West, you have to disperse your supply chains around the world. And there are some rather curious outcomes of all of this. Now, perhaps the most import dependent industry in Russia was in fact the car industry. They 
they imported lots of subcomponents from Europe. But of course, European cars are not made with entirely European components. And I've now learned that one of the reasons why car production in Russia has been restarting is that they've been able to source a lot of these subcomponents that they were formerly buying from Europe from a third country, which I'm not going to name, by the way, which in fact provides many of these subcomponents to the Europeans as well. And in fact, not just the subcomponents, but you know, they you know, the dyes, the designs, all of that kind of thing. It's not China, by the way, I should say. It's a completely different country, but a friend, a country that is a friend. So you are you lose South Korea. Both that I'm not going to say you lose <laughs> that you lose the both the ability to just keep producing but of course you also find that it cuts against you when you try to impose sanctions because you're not in control of the supply chains as you might think you are yeah i i just want to add on to what uh, both of you are saying hey, gonzalo you're making a lot of really great points i i always like to simplify it down <laughs> to uh, if you have <laughs> If you have a desert island and you have 50 people on that desert island and all 50 people are doing, you know, playing games with numbers on on ledgers or this, mm. these casino games that they play with cryptocurrency, <coughs> how long are you going to survive on that island? And then if you have a bunch of islands all close to each other and they go to war with each other and, and the other island, they're all making stuff. They have, you know, they, they're whatever. They're making things. They're growing things. Uh, and they go to war with one of these islands where they're just playing games with ledgers. Who, who's going to win at, at the end mm. of it? It's it's a very easy way. It's an easy way to simplify mm. it to think it think it through. Mm. Russia for for many years now, and Thai people are very interested in the concept of self sufficiency for for mm. decades, uh, and especially after the IMF uh, situation in the late '90s. And so in Thailand, they've talked a lot about Russia also doing this, mm. looking into ways of making your economy more resilient by doing everything mm. that you can on your own. It doesn't mean isolating yourself. You still trade with others, but you make sure that the key essentials you're able to do on your own. This has helped Thailand. It's obviously something that Russia has mm. invested heavily in that is now paying off for Russia. What about what about the West? They really can't say the same. And mm. now they've got themselves into this situation. And, you know, as, as Godzilla would say, these are people, they're like trust fund babies. They, they know what they want to do, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to win a war. They don't know who to talk to, who, who can, you know, in the factory, who's going to give them an honest uh, opinion or advice because the guy in the factory is also just trying to maximize profits. He doesn't really care about the outcome at the end of the day. So this, this is the situation the West is in, and, and we can see how it's unraveling. Mm, absolutely. By the way, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the time, what happened in Thailand and the way, because of course, this is also the moment when Russian economic policy started to change in a big way. This wasn't picked up because Russia was going in the same direction as the West was. And then the 2008 crisis happened. And that was the moment when, and I, 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 I was tracking all the politics, all the decision-making at that time, when um, not just Putin, but the entire political leadership understood the incredible danger 
of relying on the West, both for capital and for imports. And that was when Russian policy began to shift towards import substitution, those kinds of things. And the key decision makers um, up to that point, a man called um, German Greff, who was the economics minister, and uh, Kudrin, who was Alexei Kudrin, who was the finance minister, who had been very, very much associated with, you know, the policy up to that point of integrating with the West economically and adopting the Western style of economics. They were both, they both lost their jobs and the people who took over were completely different. And they didn't, it took a while for people to understand, it took, took a while for me to understand how big the shift was, but it was a huge one. And that happened in 2008. And of course, when the West started to impose sanctions on Russia in 2014, the Russians had already been working towards a degree of self-sufficiency for six years by then. And now when we've had the next sanctions wave beyond that, in 2022, well, they've had a further eight years on top of the previous six. So it's it's something I think people don't understand, don't see, because they don't track Russian policy or Russian political decision making as closely as they once did. They don't have the Ray McGovern's and the Larry Johnson's analysing things as they once did. And I just saw somebody make a comment about John Kiriakou, wonderful man, by the way, mm. ex-CIA person, who says that um, U US intelligence now largely depends on electronic assets and trying to, you know, understand things in the kind of way that they used to just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, and to the point insofar as uh, this crisis mm. is concerned and, and the notion of not being dependent on the West... I think that long term, uh, the major powers that remain after this conflict, I'm talking Eurasian powers, mm. uh, they are each of them going to strive more and more to be completely autarkic, uh, autarkic or mm. as autarkic as they possibly can be. Mm. Because uh, I think that this will be a lesson that neoliberal internationalism is a recipe for disaster eventually, because mm. you start depending on other people. And all of a sudden, they can use that dependence to manipulate you politically to your detriment. And, and also, what happens if that vital component from wherever, they themselves get gobbled up by somebody else? You know, it, it, it would be just smarter. I, I think the mentality will be, it will be smarter for each of us to have our own industrial base. And sure, we'll trade, but it will certainly not be mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that the neoliberal model wanted mm -hmm. and has uh, been striving for over the decades it will be a case it will be trade between countries free trade perhaps but not globalization well there won't be free movement of capital i think mm. that that, that yeah. is uh, they're not going to call yeah. it capital controls but essentially yeah. uh, that, that's what we have in china and and russia to mm. a lesser extent but there will be uh, capital controls to prevent that mm. deindustrialization that everybody uh mm. watching this realizes the West is in trouble. I mean, irrespective of the signs that you pick, the Russian side or the Western side, mm. the West is weakened because of this deindustrialization that they carried on to their mm. short-term benefit, but long-term uh, mm. uh, perdition. 
And so mm -hmm. I think that, that that is going to be a lesson that is going to be learned by all ec economists and economic planners in the major nations that emerge in the multipolar world. Yeah, and I just want to point out that Alexander was explaining how long it took Russia to do this. It took them years to do this. And this is the point I try to emphasize when talking about the situation the U.S. and its allies are in, in, in terms of military production and sending support to Ukraine. It's the exact same thing. It will take years, years of very serious and focused effort to fix it. And there, there's no sign that they're even serious or mm -hmm. focused to fix this. Uh, they're, they're, they don't they're going even realize to, it's a problem. Apparently not. And they're keeping the same exact system that created the problem. And they're just throwing money into it. And, you know, again, you, you have a casino economy, you have all of this money floating around, but you don't have anything tangible to, to buy with it. That That's a huge mm. problem. And, mm. and it will take years to get around this. So people who are betting on Ukraine, I, I, don't, I just don't think they've looked deep enough into the, the foundations of waging war and they don't understand uh, how, how they don't have what they, what they need to continue doing this. Well, we've been talking for an hour and a half. Perhaps this is the moment um, to invite Alex perhaps to, to join us and perhaps you've got some comments you want to bring up, Alex, and comments in. Ooh. Oh, that wasn't me. <laughs> See, if, if a rocket goes off, that was me. Okay. By the way, by the way, just 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 to say, uh, Gonzalo, I I see I see uh, uh, signs now flashing up that there's air raid alerts over much of Ukraine again, and I yeah, hope, I actually you know, at the at the beginning of the I heard broadcast. the air raid siren. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, and mm. uh, and I, I've shown you that picture of of the building next to mine that got hit. Uh, mm. Mm. in early september but uh mm. so far there hasn't been another strike at least not not one as close as that that was literally yeah. next door to my building it um, must be terrifying well it must be I, I i guess like maybe the cigarettes are helping because you know like i think it's cool <laughs> i mean yeah. i mean of course I, I i regret the loss of life and injury of course mm. but it's kind of cool to be in a war zone you know and yeah. i suppose that those are the that's the nicotine talking maybe yeah. Alex, Alex, anything you wanted to? Yeah, let's take some uh, some questions. Let me go through some of the questions here. Um, Jonathan Nugget, thank you very much for that super chat. And Pavlos for Gonzalo. Who is being sent to the front, Gonzalo? Patriots, helpless conscripts? Are the people fighting in the Donbass from the east or the west of Ukraine, as far as you know? Uh, well, I wouldn't know the specifics. I, I know just generalities. Okay. Uh, what seems to be the case is, you know, how the West says that uh, the mobilization was all conscripts. The, the mobilization in Russia of 300,000 odd men was all, all conscripts. That's a lie. They were all basically uh, the American equivalent of National Guard. They're all trained. They're, they're all uh, soldiers who uh, most of them were under contract. And, and so they're just getting a refresher course. They're not green conscripts, but the Zelensky regime is using green conscripts. I mean, there are accounts, um, uh, Western accounts, stating how some of the men being trained in, in England, in the UK, uh, are green. I mean, they have zero military training, okay? And, and so they're having to do, you know, what would ordinarily be three months of training in, in three weeks, which is absurd. And so the, the men, uh, from all accounts that I am hearing, the men who are being sent to the front are people with very little training. 
Uh, they are under-equipped and they are older, a lot older. I mean, guys in their 40s and into their 50s. And, and that, of course, you know, uh, uh, because I'm 54. I'm 54. And so, you know, I'm not 25 anymore. You know, the body is just, you know, a lot of injuries and just aging. And so to send uh, men my age or slightly younger to the front is just criminal because they're not going to be effective, number one, because you, you, the body just, you know, no matter how much you train, the body is just not there for you anymore. And on top of that, these men are being pressed into service. And so they're out of shape. They're, they're in no real condition to be fighting. And yet they are fighting. They are fighting because they are being obliged to by means fair and foul. And so I, I, I think it's, it's a disaster. Yeah, but I'm sorry, I lost track of the question. That, that was pretty much the, the question. Yeah. yeah, I think you answered it. Yeah. Uh, can, I just, can I just add something to that? And it, it points to something that Brian was saying, and I remember him saying this back in, in the summer when the British announced their training program. Now, I heard from one source, which I'm not going to name, about what the um, time, the amount of time uh, um, limit that a Ukrainian soldier had who went through this training system in Britain was. And it was awful. It was horrible. And I confirmed it from another source who's in Britain, who's also in a position to know. And they confirmed it too. And I mean... People who are sent into battle after these training courses that they're given, I mean, it, 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 it is criminal what is being done. I don't want to say more because I'd be disclosing more than I am able to. No, but it's it really is cosmetic. terrible. It, we're not cosmetic. It is criminal what is being done. That these people, and it is exactly. I remember what you were saying, Brian. That these people are not being provided with proper training. They're being sent. They're given some appearance of training, and then they're sent. They're sent basically to either get severely wounded or to die. Yeah, I I went through four months of basic and then also combat training, and I wasn't even an infantryman. Uh, so you for an entry level infantryman, you have to have somewhere about five or six months, and they're getting five weeks. They're getting five weeks. And the reason why you go through three months of basic training is not because you're going to learn all your, your combat skills there. You, you're learning the, the, your, and, and uh, getting muscle memory, working together as a team, discipline of all kinds. And then you go through extensive combat training that's also reinforcing all of that discipline and, and team cohesion. And they're going to get none of that in five weeks. And so they're just going to get this. I, is better than nothing, I guess, or maybe actually it's worse because they're going to go with a false sense of confidence into a war zone against men who do have training and who, who have proper leadership and proper logistics and weapons and many more of them. And so it is, it's absolutely criminal and it's being done solely to perpetuate this for as long as possible, to try to bleed out Russia as much as possible and it's, it's done with zero concern about their lives. And there was that, that uh, CIFA, there's a U.S. government-funded think tank, a paper about how, oh, we're, 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 it costs us nothing to bleed out Russia. And when you read through the whole article, they don't even have one sentence in there about the loss of life in Ukraine, their destroyed economy, their disappearing infrastructure. That's 
the whole conflict in a nutshell is a proxy war. The U.S. doesn't care at all about Ukraine, doesn't care if it's dismembered to the last brick and, and human being. That this is this is what this conflict is really about. Mm -hmm. yeah. Commander Crossfire says NATO has no regard for Ukrainian lives. They may not use human wave tactics, but the tactics they do use absolutely disregard the human costs. Exactly. Um, Klaus Vatne says John Helmer article says that there's not enough facilities and supply lines in order to treat the wounded properly. Brian, what do you think about that? This is probably true. I, like everything else in combat, people don't they don't understand what it is, what it's like in actuality. They see it in movies. They don't realize in actuality uh, when somebody's bleeding out, you, your brain just goes blank. You don't even know what to do first. If you have no, no, if you just got five weeks of training, how much of that do you think is medical training to stop someone bleeding out? So it'll be catastrophic. And then when you add on top of that, the, the infrastructure being whittled away, the lack of just if you don't have ammunition, do you have bandages and IVs and everything else that you need? No, the answer is no. So uh, when you're reading through these statistics about dead and injured, just keep in mind that when you're injured in this under these circumstances, there's going to be many more that die later on because they didn't get the treatment that they needed. Yeah, that's why the, the wounded in action and in, in KIA, uh, that, that um, proportion is so low because so many of the wounded who would have otherwise survived are dying on the battlefield because there's so many. Yeah. Uh, Gonzalo from uh, Sigrid Natalia, would BRICS Hello. demanding a gold-backed currency for oil trade speed up NATO intervention in Ukraine due to panic? Will the billions well, of US dollars in support lose their current value? Well, the, the problem is that, see, there's always this notion that they're going to tr trade in gold at some point. And, and that, that, as a practical possibility, it's just not possible. The global economy is far larger than all the stores of gold in the world. And so the notion that trade is going to be carried out in gold is, is sort of ridiculous. And, and so that, 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 that is just, just off the table because it's just not possible, okay, or any other precious metal, silver, platinum, palladium. And so what I think is going to happen is that there's going to be some sort of currency clearinghouse. That, that seems the, the mechanism that this multipolar world will have. They will create some sort of currency clearinghouse. Basically, I mean, this is grossly oversimplifying it, but basically you show up with your rupees and you get rubles that you can direct wherever you want. Okay. Sort of like a, um, like a bank of international uh, settlements, but uh, for these, these multipolar nations with these various currencies. Because, like, for instance, you know, the Indians are buying that oil that from Russia up to 910,000 barrels per day. They're buying it um, in rupees. And so you, you, the notion of a currency clearinghouse of some sort, that seems to be the future. But at this time, the dollar capital markets are large enough and liquid enough that it is beneficial to all of these uh, other economies to keep on tapping into it. But once the rest of the world continues on its merry path without the Western economies, then they're, they're really going to de-dollarize. They are already de-dollarizing. China has been selling more treasuries than it's been buying for a number of years now. And so the, the notion that eventually the, the rest of the world will completely de-dollarize and there will be some sort of, like I said, some sort of currency clearinghouse of some sort. I don't know the how that would happen, but they'll figure out a way. They are smart customers. They are, they are going to de-dollarize. And because of this, the dollar's inflation will skyrocket. Because, you see, 
a lot of the, the dollar's strength resides in the fact that the rest of the world needs dollar capital markets in order to trade. Once that process of de-dollarization de happens, and it's not even a lot, okay, once it starts to happen in earnest, that's when the dollar really loses value. And then it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle where people who are holding dollar assets will want to get out of them as quickly as possible because they're going to see how the dollar is spiraling out of control. So once that tipping point, insofar as uh, uh, dollar demand is hit, then it's all bets are off because the dollar could really dive very, very quickly. And there would be nothing that the US, um, US Federal Reserve could do about it, much less the Treasury Department. It, it would be a, a, a fact that the rest of the world doesn't want dollar assets and they're selling them at fire sale prices until eventually hits zero. Hmm. Murat says, hi, Gonzalo. What is the mood of Ukrainians you may know in Kharkov towards Russia at this point? Well, like I said, uh, uh, Sotovose, it's, you know, they're Russian. I mean, Sotovose, it's like for fine by us, the majority, I would argue because they are ethnic Russians. And like I said, the ethnic Ukrainians have left long ago and, uh, and those who were pro-Western have also left. And so the people who remain at least in the city of Kharkov, uh, I, would, I would guess are more pro-Russian though nobody says this publicly. Hmm. Christian, Katie Benush says, when will you guys be having a meet and meet and greet in England, Greece? Incredible coverage, brave and informed guests. Kharkov. Loyal and grateful what listeners. Me? Yeah. Come on. Kharkov. You know, why don't you guys come here? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, get on a train. You'll, yep. you know, you can see the rockets hitting the, the train station or the electrical <laughs> transmissions or whatever. <laughs> Thank you for that, Christian. Sanjeva says, Brian, Gonzalo and Alexander, I finally get what you meant by don't march on Moscow. It means Russia will fight no matter what the handicap is and will prevail because hardship is not an obstacle for them. And I can't fathom why the West doesn't see this in Russian history. I'm just going to say this. I mean, yeah, there's Russian history, which we all know to a greater or lesser extent. It is very difficult unless you have been to Russia to get a sense of the scale of the country and of its resources. It, it, it is huge. Its economy is proportionately huge in its own way. It's eccentric and different from ours, which makes it difficult sometimes to measure. Sometimes its living standards can be you know, lower, but it's, it's just a giant to take on. And of course, it may not be, you know, the agile initially, it may be taken by surprise. But it, 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 those resources in the end count. It was a Russian official. Some say it was Lenin, some say it was Stalin, who said, you know, that quantity has a quality of all of its own. And when you are in Russia, you, you understand very well what that means. I mean, the distances you have to travel for one, for one thing, to just get from one place to the other, you can capture a town where you know with all kinds of factories and industrial facilities and there's 10 others which can do the same thing it, it it's not a place you want to go to war against and if i can say russia is like that china is that tenfold hmm. danielle says any comments on the situation of kosovo and serbia mm. we we touched upon that but Eurogobor brings up an interesting point says 
Orban rejected a land invasion into Serbia in 99 on NATO's request. Given the good relationship between the countries and a large Hungarian minority living there, what role would Hungary play in a clash? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Hungary would be marginalized. And, yes. and this would be the perfect uh, nail in the coffin insofar as Hungary's participation in the EU. They mm. might use this as an excuse to completely marginalize Hungary. And, and that would be prove very interesting because Hungary, of course, shares a border with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And if you accept my uh, supposition <coughs> that the Russians will wind up capturing all of, uh, of current Ukraine, then, you know, potentially Hungary has an out to ally itself closer to Russia. That's you block Hungary from, from access to the sea. And therefore you yeah. block Serbia and you lock yeah. them in. Yeah. I, can I just uh, come back to a point that Alex and I, uh, we, we did a program about this and I just want to repeat a point that we made there, which is that an, another NATO attack on Serbia is going to have implications. I mean, it may not be quite as straightforward as oh, some yeah. people in NATO think. It is a tough country. The landscape is hard as well, actually. Some parts of it, no easy place to capture. But beyond that, this is going to have a big effect in the Balkans. A lot of people in the Balkans are not going to be happy at all. Uh, there's a lot of pro, not just pro-Serb sentiment, but feeling that NATO countries don't really understand things in the Balkans. And of course, if we're talking about globally, Another war by NATO attacking another independent country is not going to play well at this time. Thank you, Denise, for that super sticker. And Klaus says, still 190,000 fighting Ukraine soldiers. This is from a Ukrainian source. Brian, what do you make of that source? Source's numbers. We're hearing all of these numbers coming out about how how many troops are fighting, how many casualties. Uh, I, I have found, to be honest with you, I found that the, the Russian Ministry of Defense, their numbers have been the most realistic. I don't know if they're exactly on spot or not about, um, especially in regards to casualties, but I, I found overall, because I have my own way of, of looking at numbers, I have found that their numbers have, are, are very, very close uh, to what seems most realistic. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, Vanderlyn was actually saying 100,000 when I think the Ministry of Defense of Russia put the number actually lower than that. So I, I don't know. So you have to be careful with all of these numbers. I think the, the most important thing to look at is what are the common denominators between what many sources are saying and try to try to average it out and also look at what's playing out on the battlefield. So we, we've heard that Ukraine has a million man army at, at, at certain points. And then what, how did that play out on the battlefield? Did it play out as if they had a million man army? No. Hmm. Uh, Elsa says, we are talking about Germany and Merkel that we're not serious about Minsk, but what about the French? They were never serious about it either. I think, well, I think that's exactly correct. And can I just say, apparently, and this isn't, this is something I've, I, I, that's been reported independently of what Merkel's been saying. Apparently, a major event that happened last year, one that really um, infuriated the Russians and made Putin personally extremely angry, was that Macron apparently said to Putin directly, straightforwardly, forget about Minsk. It's all um, dead and dusted. 
let's uh, go ahead. You have a meeting with Zelensky and sort it out, you and him, because and and, and accept that in fact um, this isn't a really a, a, a civil conflict involving the Donbass. It's just between you and Ukraine. And it seems Putin was absolutely furious, and it was one of the one of the major events that you know began to set in train the collapse of trust that led to the start of the war. Hmm. So Macron basically admitted that the Minsk deal was uh, was BS. You have Merkel yeah. admitting it twice. You have Poroshenko admitting it as well. Yeah. Writing about it. Three. Writing yeah. about it. Absolutely. Three different, Absolutely. Three different sources at the actual uh, event Absolutely. or part of the event. And they all admit that it was just one big con job. Absolutely. And I think this is it also provides context to a very strange incident that happened last year, around this time last year, when the Russians got very, very angry with the French and the Germans. And they were saying that the French and the Germans were backtracking on Minsk and they published all sorts of um, messages that were, they were getting from the French and the Germans in which the French and the Germans were trying to bypass Minsk and get direct uh, negotiations going between Moscow and Kiev which were basically all about returning Donbass to Ukraine. And you could, you could see that this was a major event and Macron was absolutely involved in all of this too. There's no doubt about it at all. I have to emphasize something that we mentioned previously. The, the loss of trust of the rest of the world towards the West cannot be discounted or, 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 or ignored. And the West is ignoring it. But this is a the, catastrophe for the West. Because as I've said repeatedly, I'm a man of the West. And I want the well-being of the West. It's my cultural homeland. But this is a disaster. They're, they're, not, they're not only ignoring, ignoring it, Gonzalo. They're, they're rewriting it. They're revising it. Because if, if, well, if you go Orwellian. to... Yeah, no one's talking about Minsk 1 or Minsk 2. And, and the media is not allowed to report on Minsk 1 or Minsk 2 because it would, it would destroy the whole narrative of Putin waking up one morning and he just decided to invade Ukraine because he's Putin, the evil dictator. So they're not going to provide any context. And there was an article that came out on the Daily Mail uh, just the other day, which was uh, Cleverly, who's the, uh, the foreign minister. And he said, well, <laughs> he said that we can't, as the West, we can't trust Russia in a negotiation. If we sign any kind of ceasefire, we can't trust them because... Because Putin would try to buy time in order to rearm the Russian military. That is in the daily projection. Projection. I mean, come on. Uh, also, just remember, this, this was never a conflict between Ukraine and Russia. It was always, from the very beginning, a proxy conflict. It was the United States who overthrew the Ukrainian government in 2014. And from that point onward, put a client regime into power to militarize and menace uh, Ukrainians and also its neighbors uh, and, and Russia specifically. And so f when you look at it that way, okay, you have Minsk and it's between, uh, you know, Ukraine and whoever, it doesn't even matter because the, at the heart of this, it was always a proxy uh, machination by the U.S. against Russia. And if you don't resolve that, everything else is a symptom emanating out from that. Yeah. Can I just end this? I mean, I'm glad you brought up Cleverly's uh, um, comments because, I mean, in the context of what 
Merkel has been saying. It just takes one's breath away. But of course, Ber Merkel's comments to Die Zeit and to Der Spiegel have not been reported here. No. You go to the British media, you won't find a single reference to them. I mean, it's uh, uh, we talk about them. People who follow, you know, who, who follow our channels, they know all about them. But if you go to the British media, this is a non-subject. Exactly. And I just want to, I just want to say something else. On Sunday, I hosted a very old, very dear friend, very very prominent lawyer in Britain. I'm not going to say more about him, but anyway, he was talking about the war in Ukraine, and he said, well, isn't the obvious solution to try and negotiate some kind of autonomy for Donbass? And why can't they reach an agreement about that? And, of course, I went over the history of all of this. I brought up Minsk. And, of course, he'd never heard of it. Now, this is a very well-informed man. This is somebody who knows politics, Britain, very well, who is, uh, as I said, a prominent lawyer. And one cannot disregard the degree to which these important facts are kept from people in in Britain. If people knew about this, well, that, it would change the perspectives well, well, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about, mm. you know, the, the information space. And, and mm. here I'm going to criticize Russia because a lot mm. of people always, always say, you know, well, Russia doesn't really care about media and they don't need mm. to, to focus on media or the information mm. space or stuff like that. But once again, and Sanjeeva, uh, he, he yeah. kind of referred to this by, by talking about Peskov. If Russia put more focus, or China, or, or India, yeah. or these other great powers, if they would put more focus, it doesn't yeah. have to be to the extent of the U.S. or the West. If they put more focus on, on the information side of things... Then in 2014, 15, 16, whenever, even, even the last year or two, they, they would have been able to at least put the narrative of Minsk out there somehow, yeah. some way. Mm. Because the, the collective West always takes advantage, not of their, their absolute power in the media space, but they take advantage of the fact that other countries, the mm. other powers, have this attitude of, well, media is not you know such a big deal and... And, you know, we'll focus just on the media in our country. We'll focus on media inside of Russia. But media outside media outside of Russia, well, yeah. you know, it is what it is. That's, I think they got to start to, and you have the internet. Mm. You have the internet. They, mm. they, they have a lot of ways to get stuff out there. Mm. Well, I, I'm going to agree with you, Alex. I'm going to guess that Brian and uh, Gonzalo are going to point to the difficulties, but I agree. I'm going I, to I understand it's quickly. difficult. I understand I, 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 it's difficult. I, I'm going to, I'm going to but, add something but, else. But you know what? But let me just say something. I understand it's difficult, but it's difficult for all four of us as well. And we don't have a big government behind us. We don't have a budget of three, four hundred million like, yeah. like big uh, yeah. media outlets yeah. in state media outlets in Russia do. We don't have any of that stuff. Yeah. And, and, no. we, and we find ways to somehow have an audience. Yes. They could have I, I gotten gonna... Minsk out there. And they no, could have gotten I, I... the narrative of Minsk out there, but they didn't. And instead, the West comes and it shuts down Minsk. And then they rewrite the script. They replace um, Ukraine with Russia. They replace Merkel with Putin. And they say Putin wants to, uh, he's not going to abide by any negotiations because he wants to rearm uh, Russia. And there yeah. you have it. Uh...
I wasn't good. I wasn't disagreeing with that actually. What I wanted to, all I wanted to say was this: I think the Chinese are better at this than the Russians are. The Russians have a long-standing problem with messaging about telegraphing their news, their their ideas, and I think again it has cultural roots, and a lot of it is connected to this sense of awe that they have had historically towards the West. That they, 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 they tell themselves, we can't argue these points in the West because we're going to lose the argument. And as a result, they don't even fight the battle. Whereas the Chinese, who have more confidence here, do it much more effectively. That is my, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, what both of you are saying. And insofar as Russia is concerned, I think it's definitely cultural. Because uh, Russians, ethnic Russians as a people uh, whom I've met here, I mean, most of the people here in Kharkov are ethnic Russians and they all speak Russian. I think that there is a, a fundamental sense that, you know, what people know about my business doesn't matter. And so they don't make an effort to project out, outwardly their intentions or the reasons for their actions. And, and, and this is, you know, uh, at a cultural, at an individual level. That, that there isn't this need to tell the whole world what they are doing. Whereas in the West, there is most definitely this, this cultural need to tell everybody what they're doing. It, it's almost like uh, by verbalizing it, that it becomes closer to reality somehow. Whereas the Russians on a cultural level don't have this attitude. And so, uh, you know, you can, you can argue about Dmitry Peskov and that he's uh, this or that, the other, insofar as his, his job is concerned. But it, it's a fundamental problem with the, the uh, problem, you know, quotation marks. It, it's a quote-unquote problem of the Russian mentality that they do. They don't talk about it. They just do it, you know, show, don't tell kind of thing. And so I think that, that that's the fundamental problem. And for them to re-gear their, their culture and, and, and be more effective in terms of uh, propaganda, because that's what we're talking about. Propaganda is disseminating out into the world what you believe or what have you. Uh, they're just not good at it. I mean, I've said before, the Russians are really good at war. But insofar as messaging, insofar as putting out BS to sort of like uh, explain away what they're doing, they're just not good at it. And, and so they have to work with what they've got. And on a cultural level, they are just not that kind of people. That's my, my, my sense of the situation. Brian? Uh, yeah, I, th I think that uh, Russia, China, and, and everyone else in the multipolar world need to take information space and information warfare much more seriously. And, and Russia and China especially, because they, like Alex is saying, they have the resources to actually do this. They could do, they could, they could vastly, they could both vastly improve not only what they're doing domestically and internationally. And people in the comment section are pointing out that Russian media has been like completely censored across the West. There's mm -hmm. still ways to do it. But even if, okay, the West censors everything, cuts everything off and isolates themselves. Russia and China sell weapons to say countries like Thailand. Thailand has a huge problem defending its information space. If Russia and China thought about information warfare like they do conventional warfare, made solutions that they could export to countries like Thailand so that they could defend their information space, then at least in all of these other countries around the world, there would be, I wouldn't say a, a unified narrative, but basic facts like about the Minsk agreement. This would all be common knowledge across across the 
you know, everywhere, all, all these information spaces would be talking about this and the West would not get away with this. The West gets away with it because say Thailand, and it's this way across a lot of Southeast Asia and, and elsewhere, uh, you, you have information space that is completely overrun by, by the West. Uh, they're in, they're into everything and they don't know really how to get them out. They don't have the leverage to do it. They don't have the tools to do it. Uh, Russia and China do. They, this is something that they could work on and, and vastly approve, improve, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, there are people saying, okay, well, RT has been shut down, but they were shut down this year. Yeah. What about from 2014 year, onwards? Yeah. And, yeah. and let's be honest, there's certain certain things that uh, I would say are are detrimental to Russia. Narratives that are detrimental to Russia that I've seen RT passing off because they don't have people doing research on every single story. So when there's a protest in Thailand, what do they do? They uh, I don't know about now because um, I, a lot of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to raise my profile so they will ask me what's going on. But what they used to do was just read what the BBC is saying and in, in more or less just repeat it. Then that, why is what, there RT in the first place? If exactly, you're going, The whole point that, is to counter the BBC. Yeah, I, that I is exactly yeah. what what media companies all all around the world outside of the the collective West do. They they have a staff of people that just read a BBC article and, and they just kind of translate it either into their local language or just kind of reframe it a bit. And, and that is it. And that's how it, they get, it, the, it, that's how they get their news. Yeah. It's also an issue of legacy credibility. See all of these institutions, BBC, New York times, Washington post, uh, CNN, they built up an enormous amount of capital insofar as credibility is concerned. And over the last few years, they've completely frittered it away. But people still believe, oh, the, these are genuine news sources. And so somebody in Thailand, for instance, will not realize that BBC is just propaganda at this point. And they'll just buy into it because of this legacy credibility. I mean, it went back to World War II. In World War II, the BBC would report what was actually happening, warts and all. But that is no longer the case. And, and so so many people are stuck with this. The good thing is that people are starting to realize this as, as all these lies pile up from the Western media sources and that they're irrefutable lies. I mean, they're, they're obvious lies rather. And so they're, they're coming to the point of like, ah, the BBC is not the BBC of my grandfather's time. The BBC now is just a propaganda tool of the West. And, and you know, we're seeing that. We're seeing that insofar as the internal numbers are concerned in the West itself. BBC, CNN, The New York Times, Washington Post, they are all collapsing insofar as audience because even the people there realize how uh, not credible they are. And it'll take a while for this to spread out into the rest of the world. But people in the West already realize that you can't trust anything that comes out of the mainstream news sources. Yeah. Can I just says the great Cannot. tragedy is uh, let me just read this alexander quick the, the great tragedy is not the russians can't get their message out to the west it's that it can't get its message out to their own people and their friends alexander well can i just say just briefly on the bbc and those things i mean this is the great thing that i completely fail to understand you travel around britain if you meet people they will all tell you how much they distrust the media here and then on ukraine Taiwan, all of those sort of topics, 
when you talk about those, they simply repeat to you what the media says. It's, it's this strange situation where, on the one hand, we know that we're being lied to about lots of things, but then when we are asked to discuss something like that, we just believe the lies. And I, I don't know how... No, that, that's actually a, it's a known fallacy called the Agel Man effect, whereby when you when you read a, it was invented by Michael Crichton, the, the novelist. When you read a, 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 a news uh, story and you're an expert at it and you read it and you're like saying this, this is absolutely ridiculous. It's wrong. It's totally wrong. Rather than extrapolating and thinking that the other news sources are equally inaccurate. You go to the next news source about something that you are unfamiliar with and assume that it is correct just by the virtue of the fact that it's printed. And, and you don't apply that criticality that you applied to the article that you knew about and you knew was horribly wrong. You don't apply it to the next piece that is something that you are unfamiliar with. You take it at its word. And it's a, it's a known fallacy, the Gell-Mann effect. And, uh, and uh, there, there's like psychological studies on it and the whole thing. And it seems to be a, a function of the fact that when people see something broadcast, they take it as authoritative. Just like, you know, something published in a book, you automatically assume, oh, it must be true because it's published. It, it must be real, you know. And of course, it's just some nonsense. But your instinct between if I were to tell you verbally X, but you read some book written by some Yahoo and, and printed up by propagandists that says why, you'll believe the book, even though I, I'm here to tell you exactly. No, no, no. It's X. I saw it. I was there. You know, it, it's a human fallacy. And yeah. Can, can, can I just coming back to Commander Crossfire's point? I, I have to say this. I mean, obviously, there are problems with Russian messaging to Russians. But it is vastly more effective than Russian messaging to Westerners. Oh, yeah. The quality of Russian television in Russia, Russian news broadcasting, and the analytical quality and the sort of live debates that happened there can be extremely high. And it is very effective indeed. Yeah. All right, uh, Sanjeva says, Alexander, do you remember how indifferent the Western media was about uh, the Beslan terrorist attacks on children on the yes. Budanovics hospital hostage crisis in 1995? So why are we surprised about their indifference on civilian deaths in Donbass? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Absolutely. I was, in fact, in Russia when Beslan happened. And I remember the reaction. Um, in Russia to the way it was being covered in the West, that the story was being covered in the West. And I'm going to say this, I think this was the moment when Russian disenchantment with the West, I mean, at popular level, really began to gain force. There'd already been a lot of resentment from the time of the 90s, and that had built up. But that was, if you like, at the sort of more lower demographics which had never perhaps been quite happy about some of the changes that had taken place before but it was Beslan where if you like middle class opinion in Russia began to change its feelings about um, about the West and I was there and I saw it I experienced it for myself and um, Sanjeeva you're absolutely right both about Budanyovsk and about Beslan but perhaps especially about Beslan because it involved children. And of course, if you know anything at all about Russian society, you will know how 
important children are. I'm not saying, you know, that other societies don't give great weight to children, but in Russia, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, it's intensely, uh, you know, strong. And um, as I said, people were very horrified at, you know, the way in which this whole story was being reported. Yeah. Um, Gonzalo, or anybody, but uh, Gonzalo, because you are from Chile, there's a lot, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, what's going on in Brazil. I I don't know if you're following the story. There's a lot of questions about about, Mm -hmm. uh, Brazil. There's also questions about Peru and what's going on there. Does anyone, uh, has anyone been following either of these two stories? I haven't been following Brazil, but the Peru, uh, oh yeah, it's, it's a dung heap of a mess. It's it seems to be a coup d'état, and they installed this uh, this woman as the legitimate president. But uh, the, you know, uh, Peruvian politics has always been a bit of a nightmare, and so you just sort of like have to stand back in awe and watch it happen. Uh, but I, I don't have anything really intelligent to say about that situation, other to say that it was clearly a coup d'état, but dressed up as some sort of peaceable transition. Okay. Does anyone else have any any comments on Peru or Brazil? Or I haven't I, been following I, the stories. I, 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 I haven't been following Peru, and I, I don't because a lot, a lot, everything that I've read about the thing, the, the events in Peru, have come from the Western media. And coming to back to what uh, Gonzalo was saying, I'm not going to assume that that that's a reliable account. It, where when it comes to Brazil. I, I gather that um, there's been some surprise from some people in Brazil that Bolsonaro has been as quiet as he has been, and this has um, upset some of his supporters. My own personal view is that the Lula, tra- the transition to Lula, is a done thing. I, I, I don't think that there's going to be any serious attempt to stop Lula becoming president. What Lula does with the presidency, how effective he is when he's installed, that's a completely different question. And and just to, if people are wondering, I, I've always found that the gray zone and also Ben Norton, who used to be at the gray zone, uh, there was a lot of focus on Latin America. So if you if you want to start digging to see what's going on, maybe they've got a head start on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pilgrim Media says, Coach, please stop smoking. smoking. It can be done. <laughs> yeah, but what if you don't want to? <laughs> You're, I'm an addict and proud of it. All right. Uh, Care Brown says the Great Reset wasn't constructed with any purpose. It was based purely on bankers' insatiable greed that will fundamentally break the mechanism onto which Western capitalism foundations are based on. Bankers' ability to indebt others. Well, I think what has what happened, and it happened in some point in the 1970s, was that banks... I'm talking about ordinary commercial banks, not state banks, started to, in effect, issue money. And um, this, I think, gave them an enormous amount of power. And I think that started the ball rolling towards financialization, if you wish. Because that's ultimately, that was the the starting point. I I remember it. I, I, I was in working in London at the time when we had the so-called Big Bang, you know, the transformation of the way in which the city worked. And it, it, it is a fact that bankers, the banking system, the financial industry, as we know it today, evolved from that time. Whether this really fits in with the Great Reset and all of that, that's a complicated topic. 
and I'm not going to get into. But financialization certainly started with that. Hmm. Michael asks, do you think there are people in Washington who actually believe they can win a nuclear war? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, and that, that's my terror of that situation. Because I think that uh, uh, if, if the NATO powers, the West, the United States, were to suffer a catastrophic loss, I think that they would resort to nuclear weapons. I think that, that it, it would be, you know, remember, these people who have this current power, they inherited it. They didn't build it. So they don't understand uh, the dangers of it and how easily, you know, it, it, they, there could arise the moment of like, well, you know, we really got you know, hammered here or there by the Russians. Why don't we just use, you know, just the, the it's a, it's going to be a little tactical nuke, just a little one, just to see, just to try out. And then all bets are off. And so that's why, that's my true concern. And I, I don't think that it is a unfounded concern because of the irresponsibility of the current leadership crop. All of their decisions that they have made over the last, uh, really starting in January of 2020 with what happened in 2020 and so far as, you know, that malady is concerned. And then subsequent to that, uh, the um, the issue of the medication, and then subsequent to that, this current situation, insofar as uh, Ukraine is concerned, that all leads me to conclude that these are irresponsible leaders who do not understand the secondary effects of their decisions and how their decisions and their actions lead inevitably to effects, consequences that can be devastating. And so that's why I think that this irresponsible leadership might fall for that trap of thinking that it's their only way out and then it's curtains for a whole lot of people. Hmm. Jonathan says, what role will oil and mineral rights play in an eventual settlement in Ukraine? None. None. Hmm. Because this is a political issue. It's, it's not over resources in Ukraine. It, it, hmm. it, Russia has plenty of resources. It, it, ultimately, it's a political issue. Yeah. And, and keeping NATO out of the territory of the former Ukraine. Mr. Wonderful says Bolsonaro has learned from Trump's mistakes. Interesting comment. Sparky says, in the old days, agriculture, heavy industry, and logistics were considered matters of national security in the U.S. I remember those times. I remember the United States of the 1960s. I just about do. I remember the United States of the early seven, early and mid 70s, and of course that was a mighty industrial power. It had many. It had accumulating problems, but certainly things like that were taken very seriously in the United States at that time. And if you look back a little further, the U.S. excelled in these things. It was the U.S. that invented much more than Britain did, actually the modern techniques of mass production, the modern industrial processes and things of that kind. So the extent to which the United States has thrown all that away, all those skills and those resources away, in such a short time as well, has been astonishing. And historians are going to be debating how it happened, well, um, far into the future. Brian, um, do you think after the Ukraine defeat... Baltic governments will slowly become more friendly to Russia once they realize the West is not a reliable partner. Uh, I don't think so, because the, the U.S. has positioned client regimes into power that will, will never come to that realization because they're entirely dependent on, on the U.S. and whoever is working with the U.S. to mind them. So uh, if 
if uh, you know if things get really bad in Europe and get really bad for the United States, and they're not able to maintain that kind of support and, and some sort of alter, you know, maybe the people, maybe there will be alternative circles in these countries that will start to realize that and and try to assert themselves if if the opportunity presents itself. But th this is what the U.S. does. This is why Ukraine is doing what it's doing. It's it's not because people don't realize that this is horrible for Ukraine. It's because the U.S. has put people into power who are deliberately ignoring that fact. It's this cosmopolitan leadership class that does not have the best interests of the people at heart. Yes. Commander Crossfire says, no one in Canada even heard about Minsk one and Minsk two. Putin woke up, went mad and went to slaughter Ukrainians jealous of their freedom and wealth. Russians aren't involved, <laughs> the lies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ricardo Afonso says, here in Canada, Trudeau hands out money to all mainstream media, both left and right. Yeah. They all repeat what he tells them. Yeah. Yeah. And and what and, the corporations tell Trudeau what to say, because that's ultimately where you've got to follow the money all the way back to the corporations. Yep. Um, Darren says that Fiorella Isabel of the Convo Couch in RT would be a great guest to have about Peru and Argentina. Oh, yeah. She's wonderful. I've had her on the round table. She's really, really smart. And uh, yeah, you should definitely have her on. Uh, Mr. Dachi says, what do you guys think about the Nigerian president saying that they have proof that Boko Haram are using Western weapons that were sent to Ukraine? Before that, they were using weapons that the U.S. and its, its NATO allies gave to Libya. So mm. same, mm. same process continuing. Exactly. I mean, it's completely unsurprising. In fact, it, it'd be surprising if it wasn't happening. Hmm. Yes. How is your book going, Gonzalo? It's going excellent. Yeah. Uh, I've, for those of you in chat who don't know, I've been working on a series of essays while I'm here. They're book length essays. And um, I'm roughly about halfway through. And uh, they're going to wind up being in total these four essays about 100, uh, excuse me, about 300,000 words, which is roughly 800 pages or so. And mm -hmm. uh, they're about everything. And um, certainly this conflict so yeah you'll you'll get them soon enough and and as i as i promised they'll be free so uh look forward to everybody downloading it and reading it for themselves all right let's do uh, a couple of more you guys have time for a couple more yes questions, sure, comments and we'll wrap it up all right let's see here commando crossfire says when canadian veterans call the government for help they get ads for assisted self-deletion we run out yes self-deletion self think about yeah. that for a minute yes that, that that's something i find i'm sorry I, i'm sorry for jumping in uh, but i heard about that and i heard how they're offering this to teenagers for crying out loud you know i i find it this is suicidal on, on a national level you know i mean it, the, the notion that the government is actually fomenting, you know, assisted suicide or self-deletion or whatever euphemism they're coming up with. This is despicable. I mean, by any moral standard of any culture, any civilization, the notion that, you know, oh, if you're feeling too miserable, oh, you're a 17-year-old who feels miserable in his body and his circumstances. Oh, yeah, take a pill and say, you know, goodbye to the big bad world and hello to the great beyond. This is insanity. This is another symptom, as far as I'm concerned, of the co complete collapse of the West. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm uh, mm -hmm. sorry for being so um, 
ranting or, or freaking out about this, but this is truly serious. And nobody's saying it. Everybody's like, la-di-da, no big deal. My God. Well, well, here's a question kind of related to that. Well, actually, Mr. Wonderful says Canada is solent, solent green. Uh, Rafiq Adams says, to what extent to which the demographic culture shift of the U.S. establishment since the 80s played a part in the, intransig in the intransigence of the West? No, it was 91. That was the year. And that's when things went sour because the Soviet Union collapsed and, and you know, it, the West became enamored of its own power and thought that they could do anything. That's my thinking, especially the Gulf War that gave a false sense of superiority of total dominance of the world. And, and that's, that's what's led to this. And an inability to understand that the rest of the world was catching up industrially speaking and providing for their people a standard of living equal to, and in some cases superior to, that of the United States and Western Europe. Hmm. And Rafiq Adams says, great discussion. Can you guys touch on the role ancestral ethnic hatred of Russians plays into the Ukraine conflict, especially in the US and UK elite class? You get this question a lot, but it's always good to revisit it. Well, I, know I, I, will, I, I will say that uh, when you look at the, the leadership of the United States, for example, I mean, the people who are really driving policy, they hate everybody. They hate absolutely everyone. They have a, they, they are supremacists, whatever type of supremacist you want to call it, but they see themselves as better than absolutely everyone else. They don't care why you're different or, or, or how you're different. You're just not them and you belong subordinated to them. And it is an attitude that they, they have with everyone. Russia, China is probably even worse. Uh, I see it in the way the, the US and other Western countries deal with Southeast Asia, where I'm based. So I, I think it's, I don't think it's just Russia. I, I think it is it's much deeper than that even. But there's a great, uh, there are a great many personal and familial ties between Russia and Ukraine and uh, Lithuania and a lot of the people in leadership positions in the West. People don't seem to realize that these, these ancestral ties are, are quite recent and generationally speaking, just two or three generations ago. And so familial memory is very strong. Uh, I can I can speak as a Latin American. You know, I'm from Chile, and uh, one of my ancestors was a political figure, a very important one, uh, Jose Miguel Carrera in Chilean history. And we're still pissed off at other families that double-crossed uh, Jose Miguel Carrera back in the early 1800s. You know, and so especially when you grow up in an environment of always hearing these stories of these uh, figures in the past that you are related to, it carries over, it inevitably spills over. And specifically, like for instance, uh, Victoria Newland, um, her, um, her grandfather was driven out of um, what is today Odessa or nearby Odessa by the 1907 pogrom and, or the 1905 pogrom. And he fled to the United States in 1907 and he inculcated this, uh, this experience to his son, who was a famous uh, professor who had severe psychological problems because of it. And so inevitably, it would uh, spill over onto Victoria Newland herself. And I'm just speaking of one per person in particular. And so you, you see this with a lot of different people in the Western leadership class in the United States. 
Insofar as Great Britain, uh, obviously Alexander would be much better positioned to be able to give any kind of discussion on that subject. But, but the UK has historically seemed to hate Russia ever since the Crimea, I suppose. Indeed, it goes back further still. It goes back if you want to know a time when, um, I mean, Russophobia has the sort of way, there's waves of it in Britain. And a particularly strong period for it was the period between the Napoleonic Wars and the Crimean War. The Crimean War was a product of this, of that time. Now, why the British have this complex about Russia, I have never fully understood. I mean, we've not had the Russians invade us. They've never imposed their political system or their economic system. They've never grabbed any of our territory. I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult for me to understand what it is exactly about the British and this complex and this issue they have with the Russians. And I think perhaps at some level there is a kind of um, ancestral thing. I mean, you know, the British upper class, you'd be surprised how many of them are descendants of people who were up, upper class 200 years ago. But I also think, I do think one factor is in play, which is that Britain, of course, used to be a great power. In the 19th century, its rival was Russia. Russia is still a great power. Britain is not. And there are the resentments about the fact that the old adversary is still there playing a big game on the global, uh, uh, on, in, on the global uh, scene, whereas Britain increasingly senses that its moment has passed. So there may be some element of that resentment. But what ultimately it is about the British that drives them to this hostility towards Russia, whatever regime it has, whatever kind of economic system it has, be it czarist, communist, post-communist, Putinist, whatever it is, I've never really been able to, 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 to fathom it. I mean, I'm something of an outsider in British terms, because obviously I'm from Greece. I'm not really conversant with the kind of attitudes on this question of the British upper classes. I can't explain them. All I can do is tell you that they're there and that they're a fact and that they are not just a fact, but a kind of fixation and that it's causing an enormous amount of damage. So you go to the British newspapers, you see a time when things are becoming very difficult here in Britain and you get the sense that far too much of the British leadership instead of being focused on Britain's problems, is fixated with Ukraine and with Russia and what, what Mr. Putin is doing. Two questions, Alexander, if you will. Uh, mm. Number one, so you would agree that there is some inherent hatred of Russia that is endemic in especially the leadership class in the UK, correct? Mm. Yes, okay. absolutely. I mean, periods, second, periods the, of good relations between Britain and Russia are very brief. They're yeah. very brief. They never last very long. And you can always see when they happen that, you know, there's there's resentments and angers and stresses underneath. And many mm -hmm. people within the leadership, the, the, the upper classes are not happy. And the second question I have, do you think it might be basically a guilty conscience? You know, because the, the Brits, they actively prevented a lot of people from the Russian leadership class of the, of the imperial Russian leadership class from emigrating to the UK. Uh, um, and see, there were many see, people see the in the UK. Uh, George, see the comment. save his cousin Nikolai. Yeah, there, mm -hmm. there's that. 
Uh, and that's like the, the, the top most, if you will, because there were a lot of other people who also had strong ties, familial yes. ties, inclu inclusive. Yes. Because I, I knew uh, a journalist years ago, um, Nicholas Ashishov, who was uh, uh, Russian descent, mm -hmm. but was Brit British, had been born mm -hmm. in Britain and what have you. And you know, some of the stories he told were just quite remarkable in, in that regard of mm -hmm. Britain kind of like turning its back on that entire leadership class that many of them were related to in the UK. Do you think that that guilty conscience is playing into this somehow? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's that famous line in um, Crime and Punishment from Dostoevsky, we always hate those we have wronged. Yeah. And I think that there is an element of yeah. this, and not just about you know the fact that they betrayed people who they were connected to, but you know the fact that you know we've been hammering away at the Russians for such a long time means that we have to hate them ultimately, because otherwise, how do we justify it to ourselves? So, I mean, there is, there is, I think, a lot of that element too. And uh, Ricardo Alfonso has made a very good point that the British also have long wanted to get their hands on Russian resources, and this is absolutely true. And there was enormous resentment in London, as I remember, just a few, short time ago when Putin came along and stopped people, you know, buying Gazprom stock and Rosneft stock and, you know, uh, um, Hodakovsky was arrested and his oil company, Yukos, was nationalized and there'd been British investors into that. So, I mean, there are these things, but you can't just explain it by a desire for resources. I mean, it, it's so deep and it's so visceral and it goes back so far that I think, you know, this explanation, you know, you hate those you've wronged over a mm. very long period of time is as good as any. Mm. But, you know, I, I, if you start talking in that way, you're going into questions of, you know, psychology and all of this, which I'm never really comfortable discussing because um, I'm not really, that's not me. <laughs> I'm not really an expert on those things. All I can say is British hostility to Russia is a fact it's a long-standing and enduring one. I don't fully understand it, but I just have to acknowledge it exists. Yeah. Victor Boot made an interesting uh, comment, something along these lines, uh, guys, in his interview with RT. And he said that the U he was talking about the U.S. He said his time in the U.S., he realized that Americans and Russians have a lot more in common than they do... Uh, they have not in common. There shouldn't be a reason for them to fight. And we've been saying this for a while now. If you look at the U.S. and Russia, there is a lot of commonality between both of those countries. And that's what uh, Victor Boot was saying. And he said this is pretty much a game that's being played at uh, an elite level. And my thinking on that is that one of the reasons you have the elite so upset with uh, Putin and Russia, I mean, they've always been upset with Putin and Russia, but one of the big reasons is that Putin uh, stepped into Ukraine and he blew apart their Ukraine grift. I mean, they had a good game going for eight, nine years and no one knew what the hell was going on. No one ever paid attention to it. No, no one bothered to, to take a look or investigate into all of the dealings that were taking place in, uh, in Ukraine. And then Putin comes in and he, and he causes all kinds of trouble. Didn't Putin disrupt their Russia in the 90s grift also? I think they were all pretty disappointed about that. Oh, yeah. Exactly. 
So, you know, it's, it's money. Money plays a big, big role. Um, let's do a couple of more and we'll wrap this up. Brian, leaders in the West think they can just click on an icon and order armaments. They have yeah. no idea about production <laughs> runs, lead times, or that they no longer have a skilled labor force. That is from Sparky. Trust fund babies. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, Brian. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, they, these are these are people. When you read their the, their policy papers, uh, however educated they are in certain areas, there's certain th these are people who spent their lives in academia. They've I don't think they've ever had a real job. In, you know, like doing something physical. I don't think they know where where things come from. I don't think they like to go visit factories very often. And so all of this, ew, all those grotty people with greasy hands, ew. <laughs> exactly. And there's no, you know, there's no Starbucks that they could uh, go to. So so all of this adds up, and it it becomes like a, a major blind spot of theirs, and and it adds up, and we're we're seeing we're seeing the fallout now. Hmm. Glenn says, how much overall Russian support across Ukraine is there, Gonzalo? I have heard a rumor that it's positive for the Russia. Well, we're not really going to know until they've taken over the country. And, and, and if there's like a lot of partisan activity, then that would prove one thing. If there isn't, I mean, a spontaneous actual partisan activity as opposed to uh, uh, partisan activity fomented and, uh, and supplied by the West or agents thereof. Uh, if if they are able to capture the city, uh, the cities rather, and and uh, get things going again, as they've done in uh, Mariupol, for instance, I think that there, there will be a lot of happiness on the part of people in, especially Eastern Ukraine. Uh, certainly in the West, they're not going to be happy about it, uh, and and I think that that's going to be their, their 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 the point of contention that the Russians will have once they take over the whole country, but. Um, but in general, I think that um, everything east of the Dnieper will go to Russia and, and everything south up to Transnistria, and of course, including Odessa. And I think in very short order, people will be very happy. Um, and because also it's very clear that the Russians' intent is to really rebuild and, and re-energize the area. Plus the fact that I would not be surprised if they encourage Russians living in Russia to move to these newly acquired territories to even strengthen that bond. And so I think that, um, yeah, that, that's basically what I think about the, the situation. Brian, what do you think? Well, I, I think the areas that we've seen Russia move into and then some, in some cases move out of the, you know, the partisan activity was all, it, it was Ukrainian military and it was with Western backing. And so it's not, it's not as if people there are, organically just rising up uh, not not significant i'm sure that it happens but it's it's not significant and lo look at say chechnya Th this was the the same scenario it was artificial the us was stirring it up and russia was able to deal with it and i think they're going to be able to deal with ukraine ukraine is right on their border they have a common history language everything it's not af it's not like the united states going to iraq and they have absolutely nothing in common not language, not anything, and no interest either. This is something that that Russia has an interest in and has many connections to. So I, I think it's going to work out a lot, a, a lot It'll better be than maybe some people in the West would 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 like it to. Yeah, I think it's going to be very smooth. Yeah. 
Uh, Mr. Wonderful says, when looking back at the downfalls of British influence on history, we must balance the negativity with the incredible contributions. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're on mute, Alexander. You, you said something. No, yes, no, absolutely. I completely, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and, and that is entirely right. And finally, to wrap it up, we'll go to Pav Srada. What do you think of the mantra? We want Russia out, Americans in, and Germany down by NATO. Is it still actual? Does it still hold? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is, of course, uh, uh, said by NATO's first Secretary General, who was British, and he was Lord Ismay, and he was a prominent um, you know, ally of Churchill, and he played a big role in British policy before the Second World War and during the Second World War. And he was speaking very much from a British point of view. Keep the Germans down, because, of course, they're the adversary of Britain, keep the Russians out because, well, they are the people who might replace Germany as the big power in Europe and keep the Americans in because they are our transatlantic cousins. They speak the same language as we do. We think we can exercise great influence over them. We exaggerate the extent in Britain that we think we can do that. Uh, on the contrary, um, we can't exercise much influence over them at all, ultimately. But anyway, but we think we can do all of that. So we keep the Americans in, the Germans down, the Russians out, and the UK stays on top. That was what Lord Ismeep was basically talking about. And that was what NATO was all about when he said it, which was way back in the 1940s. But it's still, I think, the operative philosophy of NATO. It's changed its purpose the, the purpose behind the policy has changed. It's become less British focused. But I think ultimately this is very much what it's all about. And I think this is it's worked. I mean, it's been very, very successful, but it's principally successful now, not for Britain, not for any European power, but for the neocons in the United States. Brian, Gonzalo, your thoughts and we'll wrap it up. And by the way, every, all the questions, we'll answer them in a dedicated uh video as well but what are your thoughts the I the old the old nato mantra i i think nato was always a, a project to amplify anglo-american hegemony around the around the globe but also to subordinate europe to anglo-american interests and that is something that is still going on to this day that was the whole point of derailing or actually we should just say blowing up the Nord stream pipelines because imagine if Europe and Russia were working together and then they were trading back and forth. You know, you have this cheap energy and, and industry and then you're trading with China across the Belt and Road Initiative. That would be Eurasia moving on without the United States because the U.S. is not interested at the moment. It's not interested in being involved in that. They want to be impose themselves upon it. They don't want to be a part of it. So that's what NATO has been. That's what NATO is. And that's what it's going to continue doing until somebody squashes it. I think that Jen Stoltenberg, I, I completely agree with Brian, by the way, and, and Alexander as well. Uh, I think Jen Stoltenberg, the, the current uh, president of NATO, his title is president, right? The, the head of NATO. I, I forget, actually, it doesn't matter. The current head of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg, um, said that uh, a loss in Ukraine would be a loss for NATO. Uh, he was right, because if, if NATO, uh, if, if Ukraine rather, uh, is fully captured by the Russians and they get up roll right, right up to the border with Poland and they hold the territory clearly and decisively, 
then NATO, you know, it, it, it'll start to crumble. And Doug McGregor mentioned something else that he said that, you know, it, it, even in wartime, it's hard to keep a coalition going. Now, one could argue that between 45 and 91, there was a war, the Cold War. And so it, there, there was an incentive for NATO to maintain cohesion. But after 91, there was really no need for it. And it became, starting in 91, with this notion of expanding it, it became a, a tool for global hegemony. And uh, that, I think that a lot of people within NATO, I mean, peripheral countries like Spain, Portugal, France even, uh, Italy certainly, uh, they're going to be questioning, well, why exactly are we involved in this alliance? Because it, it can't get the job done. We see this in Ukraine. And so I think that there will be a, 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 a slow petering out of NATO. I don't think it's going to collapse in, in like a fire and in, in like a bonfire, but a slow petering out, uh, uh, um, sort of like just withering on the vine, if you will. I think the EU, um, because of the current economic problems that it is experiencing and will continue to experience, I think the EU's days are numbered. And perhaps if you consider NATO to be the military arm of the European Union, that once the EU collapses fully, then NATO would, would go the way of the dodo uh, just as quickly. But uh, yeah, and, and because uh, uh, furthermore, because NATO depends so much on American money and weapons, if the United States is suffering a severe economic downturn, well, can it afford to maintain NATO? And, and so it would be easier to just sort of like slowly turn off the um, money spigot to NATO and again, let it die on the vine, as it were. All right. What happens to the euro, Gonzalo? If, if the European Union collapses, you, yeah. the, the euro yeah. is toast. You know? yeah, and I think, and well, to tell how, you the truth, how, what, 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 well, yeah, how, you envi- how would you envision it? That, that's a really good question. See, what would have to happen is that some country or another decides for its economic health that it has to pull out of the euro and turn to its own currency. And it would have to be a crisis severe enough that that, that would be a legitimate reason. And it would have to be an economy big enough for that to actually happen. And the prime candidate at this time would be Italy. And because the euro is in essence, the Deutschmark. I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's, it's always been the Deutschmark, just dressed up in this uh, you know, pan-European nonsense. But if, if an economy like Italy's were to really crash and holding on to the euro were truly detrimental to its economy, they'd be the ones to pull out and create the new lira or whatever. And then it would be a race to the bottom because the other countries would realize, holy cow, I mean, it would be a tremendous blow to the euro as a currency. And the other countries would sort of like realize, hey, we should get out of this too. And it would be a a, a snowball effect kind of thing and a race to the bottom. And the euro would wind up being just the um, plaything of the Germans. That would be my way of thinking. Now, this is this is on the one hand far off, far off. On the other hand, I don't think it's far off at all because the economic situation of the West, Europe and the Americas and Australia and New Zealand is so, um, is so teetering. It's so fragile that you know any big blow and the whole thing will just fall apart. Because again, to go back to what McGregor said, you know, it's very difficult to hold alliances together even in wartime. And the euro, the, the currency, yeah, certainly it's not, um, it's not wartime insofar as the currency is concerned, but there could come a moment where you do have 
economic warfare between the different countries of Europe, just to keep them their heads above water. And so we'd have to pay attention to which is the first country that decides, you know, or starts talking about the fact that the euro is pernicious to their economy and that they should pull out. And I think the European Union knows this well enough that they're going to try to nip that kind of mentality in the bud. I think that they're thanking their lucky stars that the Hungarians have never uh, let go of the florin. Because if, if Hungary's economy had been uh, integrated, and then there'd be a lot more problems and them exiting the euro would have much more ramifications because it would show, hey, see, the Hungarians got out of the euro and nothing much happened to them. I'm talking in the hypothetical, of course. And, and so that would foment the, uh, the movements in other countries. Because look at what happened to Greece. They held on to the euro. And how did that turn out for the Greek economy? Good or bad? You know, I mean, so, so that's the situation that I think more and more of the larger European economies are going to start finding themselves in, where they might need to exit the euro, devaluate their currency, and try to prop up their economies that way. But we'll have to wait and see. A final point about the euro. I'd be extraordinarily surprised if it's still around in 10 years. I mean, I, I, I would be just shocked. I'd be still very surprised if it's around in five years. I don't think that the euro is long for this earth, to tell you the truth. It's fascinating. Uh, you're on mute, Alexander. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. No, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, the, the, uh, just to come back to what Gonzalo says, if a country like Italy quits the euro, it's curtains. I mean, the whole thing will just collapse. The, the financial markets would immediately conclude the euro was going. There would be massive issues about debt. I mean, the, the, remember... The whole system of the euro now is underpinned by um, debts, by the European Central Bank, by the sovereign debt of the southern European countries. The whole, the whole structure would come crashing down. It would bring down the European Union with it, in my opinion. And, of course, it would probably trigger major ructions in the economic system in Europe. But having said that, I'm absolutely sure it will come. Because every time, every attempt to try and, you know, keep the thing going, all it's done is it's highlighted the system's fragility and made it more complicated and more burdensome and ultimately guaranteeing that the problems when they come together will be, much, it will, will, will be bigger and the effect will be even more chaotic. So I think it's going to come. I've no doubt about it. None at all. Yeah, because we should never underestimate the cleverness of the people running these particular institutions to keep things going long past the sell-by date. Yes. I mean, they're very clever at that. Absolutely. Well, the, the euro system should have been abandoned in 20, 2011, 2012. I yeah. mean, it's, it's been yeah. living. I mean, th that, that was when it became clear that this is not really going to function as a, as a currency area and a, and a united monetary area. So, I mean, they've been able to keep it going ever since. And, of course, all that they're doing is that they're making sure that when the collapse comes, it will be far more catastrophic than it would have been if it had been all wound up in 2011, 2012 on the yeah, country. Then, by the way, I was laughing. Straightforward, Go on. 
Yeah, I was yeah. laughing at the comment that Alex posted. Somebody said that Croatia, I, I didn't know this, that Croatia yeah. was going to yeah. join the yeah. Euro in January 1st of 2023. True. Perfect timing. <laughs> You're arriving when the party is about to go. Back. I mean, I, I asked that question to, to, to you guys because, you know, you always get the pushback from, you know, very, you, you, would, you would say they're very smart economists, financial experts who say, you know, this that's crazy. It's not the euro's not going anywhere, Europe's not going anywhere. It's too yeah, big yeah. To, to collapse. Too big to fail. I've heard that before. Yeah. You, you know, it's just just stop stop all this stuff about catastrophism. EU currency collapse and all of this because it's it's just too it's too embedded in the entire system for it to for it to go anywhere. Well, but, economists but we, shouldn't be taken seriously. Contemporary economists should not be taken seriously because ultimately they are propagandists. They are mm. people who are spouting the right sort of BS in order to prop up the current establishment. They are not scientists by any stretch of the imagination. They are social scientists. Mm. I mean, you know, you do keep in mind economics came out of philosophy. Mm. Uh, um, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, the, the the wealth of nations. Adam Smith yeah, Anderson. Uh, uh, was a philosopher, and and it, economy was considered a part of philosophy. Then it transitioned into social sciences, and then in the seventies, under Paul Samuelson and some others, they wholesale imported physics into <laughs> economics to mm. give a patina of uh, scientism to mm. the endeavor. Mm. But economics is, as it's currently practiced, macroeconomics. Yeah, certainly on a level of finance, microeconomics, it's been an incredibly useful tool. But insofar as macroeconomic theory is concerned, it's just a load of balderdash. You cannot take it seriously. And so if any economist starts saying, oh, the euro can never, ha can never will always exist and blah, blah, that's just propaganda, just, just uh, feel-good propaganda that's mm -hmm. just lies. Absolutely. Can I just say, I like that word, scientism. I'll remember it, Gonzalo. But um, here first. <laughs> what, what I always say to people who say something is too big to fail is they look at how many things have been called too big to fail and have failed. Soviet Union. <laughs> the Soviet, Soviet Union. You know, you can go all the way back to, you know, Babylon, the Roman Empire. Everything sooner or later fails. The question is not, is it too big to fail? Is it? It, it, it is how fragile, how sound it currently is. If the structure is unsound, sooner or later, more likely sooner than later, it will fail. So, I mean, this isn't an argument. It's just, a, it's just people it's just trying nonsense. to convince themselves ultimately. Yeah. I think that's really yeah. what it's more that's about it. than anything that's else. It. Yeah. I mean, you do have to understand that the euro, uh, for for a big chunk of its early existence. Uh, the euro and the euro bonds was essentially German vendor financing. That, mm. That's what was going on. The, the, the southern countries were able to issue debt and use those euros to go and buy German goods and services. And the Germans mm. were happy because they could reinvest their uh, uh, euros into these, these euro mm. bonds. It was mm. only in 2012 when the ability to pay of the mm. southern economies came into question. That's when the whole system, you know, that's when we all realized who was swimming naked, you know? Mm. And so, uh, um, yeah, the, 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 the whole proposal of the, Euro, of the Euro, it was a German project. There's a reason that the central bank, the European Central Bank is located in Frankfurt and not mm. in Brussels or, or some other EU state. Mm. You know, it was a German proposition. It worked like a charm for them for a while. And now it's come to the end of its usefulness. 
Mm. And, and so it's, you know, entropy rules all. That is the yeah. only law that is true, entropy. And absolutely. it's... That's absolutely true. That is completely true, actually. Mm. Yeah. All right. Uh, NGS says, Brian, will Russia go on the offensive or wait for a Ukraine implosion? I think you answered that, Brian. Yeah, I, th I, I think it's going to be, uh, they're going to continue grinding. And then if there is a collapse, they'll exploit it with what they're setting up. That's what I think. But who knows? Yeah. Well, we just have to wait and see. Fantastic. On that note, we will end this live stream. Kurt Erdogan in Greece, jetset.one. Yeah. Well, you guys would Erdo know better. Erdogan says stuff like this every every, every day. <laughs> can, can can I just finish actually? Because we've going back to the original topic of this live stream. We've now had the Russian response to Zelensky's peace plan. They're withdrawing. They're withdrawing. Just flying to Kiev right now. Peskov. They're just pulling asked, back. Wagner is asked, going back to Moscow. Yeah, of course. Uh, the, uh, this is task. There can be no discussion about withdrawal of Russian troops before the end of the year. Russian presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov told the media on Tuesday. Uh, it is out of the question, he went on to say. The Ukrainian side will have to take into account the realities that emerged lately. These realities are a product of the policy that the Ukrainian leadership and the current Ukrainian regime have conducted for the past 15 or even 20 years. And then he went on to talk about uh, the uh, proposal, Zelensky's proposal for more weapons to Ukraine. And he says these are simply three steps towards further combat operations. So for once, Peskov, I think, was pretty straightforward. Yeah. He said before the end, what was the first sentence? Uh, I, out of the question. I mean, the, the, the idea before, of did... a Russian pullback is out of the question. Oh. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. On that note, we will end this almost three-hour live mm. stream. Wow! Mm. Mm. Oh, uh, Thank you. Chat, to... I posted something in the chat so that mm. they'll they'll uh, show us out with a plus one if you liked it and a zero if you didn't. Ah, uh, yeah. Plus one if you liked it. Zero if you didn't. Brian Berletic, the new Atlas. Link in the description <coughs> box down below. It will also be a pinned comment as well. Gonzalo Lira from the Gonzalo Lira Roundtable and Gonzalo Lira again channels in the description box down below. It will also be a pinned comment. Mm -hmm. Alexander Mercurius from the Alexander Mercurius channel and the Duran. He is the Oracle of London. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much to everybody that joined us on this live stream. Let's just say a quick thank you to our amazing moderators. Thank you, Donald W., for that super chat. To the great, the one and only, Valley S. To the fantastic Spartan warrior queen. And to William Justice. I like that. William Justice and Reckless Abandon. Thank you, Reckless Abandon. And, <coughs> of course, Zarael, the legend Zarael. Thank you very much to our moderators and to Gonzalo Lira, actually, to our moderator, the round table at Gonzalo Lira, who was also moderating. Thank you very much to everyone that watched us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and thedoran.locals.com, and to everyone that also watched us on Telegram and YouTube. Thanks, everybody.